I'm a lot of things under the guise of artist, <laughs> which you know it's all encompassing. Uh, I'm a medical illustrator by profession, by degree. Okay. I'm also an engineer and an architect. Uh, I do product design, mm-hmm. uh, cartooning. Uh, I do aviation art, uh, uh, mechanical design, um, and quite I guess quite a few other things underneath that. You are listening to the Reed Fletcher podcast. I'm here with Chris Maggio. Hi. <laughs> this is my first podcast, so be kind, be gentle. <laughs> don't worry, I don't. Not very many people listen to my podcast, so you, it's probably you, my mom, your mom. After this, I guarantee it. So. <clears throat> um, and give us just like a little intro to to what it is that you do. Okay, I'm an artist by profession uh, and by hobby and uh, and by instinct. I say that because there's nothing else that I know of that I'm good enough at or ever wanted to be other than an artist. Okay. Uh, since I was little, I started my career, I would say. Uh, I did my first oil painting when I was six years old. Wow. Sitting at a, you know, the kitchen table in Panama. My mother sat down with me and she had her oil paints. She was an artist as well, or is. Uh, my father was also very artistic. Uh, so I, you know, I, I carry on what they gave me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was it. Since I was little... That's always been what I do. Uh, even when I've had other professions or jobs or what have you, it always either entailed doing some of that or they brought it in because they had an artist at that position. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was in the Navy, I had a, I was launching fighter jets off aircraft carriers. When I wasn't, they had me painting murals you know, or designing flags or doing uh-huh. different things that were artistic because they didn't have a real artist to do that. They just happened to have me. So no matter where I've been, it's been a mainstay and I'm glad it was, because to me that was a very comforting thing to do something comfortable or something that expressed myself in a setting that may have been, in this case, very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And my off time, I was able to relax and, and express myself, and it was very, very uh, comfortable uh, in, a, in a place like that because I was different. Right. There weren't very many of us. I wasn't just another guy. I was the guy who was painting the flags. The artist. I yeah. was the artist. Yes. Um, and when you say artist, it's funny because that sounds like a, like you being modest, like a simplified version. I mean, you were saying earlier, artist, engineer. Yeah. Uh, when you tell somebody you're an artist, the first thing most of them think is, oh, you can't get a real job. So you, <laughs> you make things like beads. You're unemployed. You're unemployed. You make beaded necklaces and you sell them on Etsy. Uh, no, I actually went to school for it. I went to uh, the Cleveland Institute of Art. Mm-hmm. In Cleveland, obviously. And at the same time, I went to Case Western Medical School. So I did all five years of medical school. Uh, and my degree is medical illustration. Um, something I absolutely love. It, it's interesting that I don't do that as much anymore as I used to. Uh, partly because I have so many other avenues that I enjoy going that I didn't want to stick with one thing. Also, the markets change. Sometimes it's flood or drought. Right now, it's kind of in between. But the money isn't there. The work is there, but the money is not. And you don't go to school for stuff like that and not work towards uh, making the money that it, that it deserves mm-hmm. when I can make more money doing other things. It's not about the money, but in real, reality it is. You mm-hmm. have to make a living. You know, I could spend Absolutely. eight hours a day uh, making a dollar an hour doing a job I love, but it doesn't pay the bills. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now I work for a company called Sarcos up at uh, Research Park, and we make robots. Okay. Greatest robots ever made. Human augmentation robots, uh, Iron Man, basically. Human you know, augmentation, really? Yes. Uh, this is 
Okay, have you ever had a, a little kid stand on your feet and you dance? Mm -hmm. Okay. If you're doing that and somebody put 100 pounds on your back, the kid's not going to feel it. You're the robot. You're carrying the weight. Mm -hmm. We have basically the same thing where you, you back into the robotic suit. It's like backing into a gorilla. And everything you do, the robot does. And you can load it up with all the weight. And it feels like, imagine uh, lifting 50 pounds or 75 pounds and it feels like a gallon of milk every time, no matter what. Whether you're six foot tall or you're a five foot one, whether you're you know, a strapping big you know, college guy or you know, a petite woman, uh -huh. same thing. You put the suit on and you are equal. You can do the same thing all day long without hurting your back, without hurting your, you know, straining anything because uh, a robot does all the work. And I've been with that company for about 20 years. Uh -huh. And this is the first time this last year, uh, last fall, that we actually broke through that barrier where we now have a commercially viable amazing robotic suit uh, we partnered with delta i'm sure they they partnered with us they kind of brought us in because imagine all the baggage handlers or mechanics or anything having to do with aviation everything's heavy mm -hmm. there's nothing light about these anything well they're people they only last a certain amount of time because physically they're broken down uh workman's comp it's a big deal and i'm going to say it's about just not just delta if you think of anybody who's in a position a warehouse position amazon um you know, anybody who lifts things, any any mechanic, any uh, a gardener carrying big pots of stuff around. Mm -hmm. If you could put on a robot suit, and let's say you know you're a petite woman, and you walk over and you pick up a 200 pound, and I'm not kidding, a 200 pound pot, and you walk over to the other side of the of the nursery, or you put it into a truck, or you, you can do this all day long, and it's it's very little fatigue at all, other than just you know whether it's a hot day or what, you know what have you. Sure. So it it's going to change the way people do any sort of heavy lifting job. And my job there is, uh, when I say I, I, I don't design them, I don't build them, what I do, one of my specialties is uh, conceptual art. Okay. So if they say, well, here's the problem. My job is to take what I know about our, any product and say, okay, how do I apply this? Or how do I make one that's better that does fix the problem you have? Uh, if they said it's got to have three wheels, wings, and make yogurt, then my job is to sit down and come up with a crazy contraption. I'll do certain versions, different, uh -huh. and take it different ways. And people say, oh, I like this. We want a little bit of that. And so I, I'll mix those together. Um, I have a, I guess, a sem somewhat savant ability to see a product uh, before I draw it from a description. You know, when, they, when something's either read to me or told to me, or even if I listen to the problem that they have, I'm formulating this object in my head and I spin it around and I can see it and I can take it apart. I can see where things are crashing and that, you know, something needs to be further or different dimensions and what have you. It's hard to explain, but I see a fairly finished product before I even go to the paper, which makes it much easier for me because I'm not fumbling with uh, concepts that I don't think might work. Or I'm not getting lost in, uh, in trying to add things uh, to make it better. But that's why I've been there so long. It's not a common thing. And I thought it was. Growing up, I thought that was normal. I thought everybody could take an idea and it, this image popped in your head and you could just, and you knew it. Mm -hmm. Turns out that's not normal. I really didn't know that until, uh, gosh, I don't know, probably college days. Because um, in medical school, that's how I got through med school. I can take a, a, an organ, once I learned the basics about it, or I hold it up, you know, I, I went through cadaver lab to hold mm -hmm. it, just like everybody else. But once I've seen it and I understand the structure, in my head I can spin it anyway. And I can slice it and dice it and do basically everything you can do on a CAD computer, mm -hmm. except spit it out on a printer. 
but I sit down and I sketch it and I draw it. And But to me, it all makes sense. So <clears throat> the products that we use up there and, the, and the, the things that go, the accoutrements that go with the robot or on the robot or what have you, they'll oftentimes come to me and say, here's what we're doing, make it better or make it, make it work, uh, make it aesthetically pleasing. And I can see before I sit down to draw what it's going to look like in the end. Doesn't mean it's what they want, but I see what they've given me. And mm -hmm. from there, they can change it. And that's a nice thing for them. They don't have to spend hundreds of hours on CAD and, and make a prototype and then say, oh, that's not what we want. They hit me up and, you know, half an hour later, they've got a sketch. Mm -hmm. So it saves time. It saves effort. Uh, you know, you, you fail as many times as you can before you win. Yeah. You want to. Because you want to eliminate all the things that are not going to work. I, I uh, exacerbate the problem right away. Mm -hmm. And we get over those stumbling blocks and we find, you know, successful route. But that works with pretty much everything that I draw uh, or create in general. Um, they're not always successful, but I, I do always see them ahead of time. And oftentimes if I'm drawing for a client, they'll say, well, I'm thinking it might, you know, blah, 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 and they'll give me, <coughs> excuse me their parameters or what they have in mind. And a lot of times it's hard to hold back and say, oh, I have a better idea. Yeah. But you oftentimes do. Right. Because they don't really know what they want. They know what they like or they have an idea or they've seen something. So it's nice to be able to take their concept and somehow feed it back to them with the artistic flair or the design or the elements that maybe they didn't see in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, and I enjoy that because to me that's a successful piece of art. Something that's given them a better understanding of what they had in mind. Or if it comes directly from me and they had no input, I like that I've touched something in them that that that, that makes them want to, to have a piece of that art. Uh -huh. That makes them I don't know. It's, it's a you know it's a nice thing. It's like a baker. You know, if people come to buy their their goods, it's because they're good. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not the name, it's not the store. It's because yeah. you've done something that made them happy. Mm -hmm. And that's what I like about being an artist is having an end product that makes me happy. Because it's subjective, you're not going to find the right audience right away or maybe never doesn't mean it's not good it means it's not you've not found uh, the outlet for that particular uh, vision mm -hmm. um, I've been very fortunate that I've had a lot of jobs where it wasn't always the same thing over and over you know I'm able to uh, go as many directions as they need me to go again because of the ability to see things ahead of time and it saves a lot of uh, I wouldn't say just not a lot of time but it, it saves a lot of um, no, that's not right for the client. And when mm -hmm. the client is happier, quicker, they remember that. And it's not so much them buying more from you, it's them remembering you as the artist. Oh, I know this guy who, you know, we'll just go right to him. I love that. You can cut out three or four middle men yeah, and, yeah. and know that you're going to get something that, you know, hopefully, you know, fills your, your need. Is it ever frustrating when people don't agree with your different iterations? Yeah, I got a lot of lawsuits over that. No. <laughs> like when you have a vision for a product that they can't see or you don't like their taste in a certain thing. Is that yeah. frustrating as an artist? It can be. And sometimes it is. But I also have to keep in mind that they are not me and I'm not them. And they have a purpose for coming to me. Uh, again, as a client, my job is to fulfill their vision, mm -hmm. even if it's not the one I have. Uh, doesn't mean that I don't try and slip in something <laughs> that I just know is going to be better. Right. And sometimes it is, sometimes it's they don't even notice it. 
but it certainly didn't help. Uh, no, uh, uh, people should get what they want, I think, when they're, I wouldn't say, I don't mean, when I say client, I don't mean just paying for it. I mean, this could be just a friend-to-friend thing. Mm -hmm. I see that as a client. I need to make them happy with the end product. And if it means extra work for me beyond what I charged them or, or you know, lots of hours that I normally wouldn't have put into something, because it's that's got my name on it. Not just my name, but it's, got, it's me in there. Mm -hmm. And even if it's something simple or something that I don't agree with, um, it, they'll get the best that I can do on that. Um, granted, their attitude does uh, figure in. You know, the best I can do for that person may not be the best I can do for another person. Sure. And I guess that's part of being an artist as well. You know, yeah. it's, you're able to say screw you in very subtle ways. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. And most of the times, yeah, without using words. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, walking around, um, my wife's a graphic designer and I know that she gets really emotionally attached to things that she's made. And so they go out to a client and the client likes them or doesn't like them or, you know, we see them in her uh, online shops or anything like that. And each one kind of represents a specific emotional connection to an idea that she had. And I'm walking around here. I mean, if I guess I didn't say this, we're in your house and you can see different collections and different ideas that have kind of been turned into something tangible. Do you connect strongly with the things that you've made? Is it an emotional connection with your art? Yes, there's a connection. Uh, it's not always the same type of connection, though. Uh, there are some pieces here that I wouldn't, I would not part with. Not that they're phenomenal pieces, but maybe they were done at a time when I was either going through something, or good or bad. Some, sometimes great feelings. Artists don't always have to be downers. Okay, sometimes <laughs> you can be feeling great, and, you, and you're painting with flair, and you're loving it, and everything's uh -huh. good, and that piece will remind you of that time. Mm -hmm. um, I am not an archivist. I don't keep records of everything I do. Um, everybody says to me, oh, you, can I see a picture of what? I'm like, I don't have a picture. I sold it. I painted it and I sold it. Well, did you take a picture? No. <laughs> well, why not? Because it, I had, if you wanted it, you should have bought it. Um, I don't have, I mean, I, I sold many, many paintings that I wish I hadn't. Only because I would still like to have had them. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you do this for a living, you sell things that you make. Mm -hmm. And there are some people who are the other way around where they have very little connection, but they know it's other people enjoy their work. So they'll kick them out fast and they'll just sell like crazy. And I envy that. They're able to do that as a business. Uh, I am a little more reserved in that respect where, <coughs> excuse me, where if I do a, a painting or a drawing or, or even just a sketch, a simple sketch can be more important to me than a full painting just because of the emotion that goes into it. And before we started this, I kind of mentioned, we talked about moods and, and drawing and, mm -hmm. and things like that. Uh, again, back to my being somewhat savant, I literally, if I if you show me a sketch that I did 10 years ago, I remember every single stroke and line that I did on that. I, rem I remember how it felt to do every single one of them because everyone is a connection from my hand to my brain. And it's like a, a writer would remember reading a book that they wrote 20 years ago or, or a novel or, or a paper for school. And you, oh, I remember that. I was sitting at the table with such and such. And I remember, I remember corrections that I've made and different things. And over the years, I've, I've learned to uh, appreciate more and more how I've advanced and how I've grown in my abilities to sketch and draw. But it, it doesn't make... Back to your original question. That doesn't make a drawing more emotionally... A, 
or something I'm attached to more than another piece. Mm-hmm. It's simply a matter of um, how much fun was it to put that on the paper? And the more fun it is, the more I want to share it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a time, uh, my sister actually runs my website, runs my business, doing a great job. Hi. Um, <laughs> but there was a time when the things that were that we are selling through our website, through the business, were things that I was sketching and giving away. Because the attachment to them was not me having something. It was me creating something and watching someone's face when they're like, oh, for me, and you're thinking, yeah, you know, it's a 10-minute sketch. But to them, it's not. To them, it represents a time and place where they were and they met an artist. And, you know, there's all this uh, romantic uh, aspect of an artist for some reason, mm-hmm. which I understand. You know, when you're cutting off an ear or you're, you know, inventing something new, uh, artists have a reputation for mood and uh, disorders and what have you. It's mostly true. Uh, but if, okay, uh, example, I was at uh, the aquarium uh, a month ago. <clears throat> And a girl came up behind me, and uh, she's in town for surgery. But she, I was drawing sharks or something like that. And she, and I looked down there, she, she talked, we just started talking. Super nice. And I ended up giving her the sketch I was working on. She loved it, thought it was wonderful. To me, it was just, it was something I was doing at the time. I absorbed that information. And everything I put on that paper, I still retain. I could sit down and resketch exactly what we did, what, what I was doing at that point. Because it was just like writing a novel. I remember the passages. I remember all the words and the typos and everything. So I could resketch that. <clears throat> to her, she took it home and put it on her wall of art. <clears throat> so to me, that's that's more pleasing than a client paying a price for a piece of art. Because mm-hmm. then it's just an object. This was not. This was a gift. This was a memory that she's going to have of being here at this place you know, before her surgery and all the other things that happened. It's a memento. It's It's... It's a, a memory that she and I now share. I know it sounds very, I don't know, um, esoteric, but it's its very, I don't know, kind of deep, I would think. To some people it is. You know, some people react differently to it. You know, I'm sure people have handed things to them. They're like, oh, thank you. And then they just kind of roll it up and, you know, and now it's in a drawer. Uh-huh. And that's fine too. Um but being attached to a piece of art can be difficult. Uh, there are some pieces I've sold, and I actually I want to just call them up and, and double the price and give it back to them and say I just I need that back. Mm-hmm. That's important to me. Um, but I'm also not the kind of person that has things that I must have. Mm-hmm. I have things that I need to do what I do. Uh, being growing up the way I did, which was military, every so often, <clears throat> meaning every year, every two years. You pack up everything you, you can and you move to the new location. Mm-hmm. Military pays for it. You're only allowed certain things. You couldn't have lots and lots of stuff. You could have the things you need and they would move it for you. So my whole life has been about having the things that are necessary and then having a few little luxuries and everything else is an experience. You know, it's not what you have. It's where you go, what you do and the people you meet. And uh, being an artist, you meet a lot of people and you go a lot of places. And so to me, those are more important those events are more important to me than any amount of, of artwork that I have. Uh, again, it's something I can recreate. It didn't exist before I sat down and did it. So that's to me is the novel part. I love that. I created something. You know, I'm the creator. In any way, you are. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, anybody who does any any form of that type of work, you are the creator. It, is, it now exists because of you. Whether or not you hold on to it too tightly, that you know, a lot of people, a lot of the artists that I, uh, I'm say students, a lot of my students I find do that, and a lot of art students do because you're up and coming. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, I did a great job on this. It's the greatest thing I've ever done. I don't want to let it go. Fact is, on a grand scale of one to ten, that's about a three. I, I don't, and I'm not trying to put down sure, there, but, sure. but it really is. You've got a long way to go and a lot to learn. You're just starting this, okay? Uh, you're learning to drive a car. You're not a race car driver yet, but you right. can drive a race car uh-huh. slowly. Yeah. But that's what you're doing. <laughs> uh-huh. You're learning. So when I teach them, it seems that in a lot of times, almost immediately, that stuff that was so amazing to them that they were doing is now passe to them. Yeah. Oh my gosh, this Uh is so much more fun. Look at what I'm doing. And that I find just as pleasing as doing a drawing is getting someone else to the point where they are pleased with what they're doing. That's awesome. You know, being a docent or being a a teacher or instructor, um, it isn't for everybody and it's not something I can do all the time. It comes and goes. You know, I used to teach at the college, community college. Mm -hmm. I loved it. I taught uh, uh, intro to, to drawing, which was basically taking... In some cases, people that didn't know pointy end down with a pencil. Okay, so you you taught it slick? I did. I taught it slick. Um, I taught foundation drawing, like I said. I taught uh, figure drawing, and I taught airbrush. Okay. Which airbrush is a lot of fun. It's a disappearing art because of the computers. Airbrush. What's airbrush. Airbrush Airbrush is basically you have uh, an air source. You have the hose, and you have uh, basically it's a pen, a stylus type thing, and you've got uh, multiple controls on here. You've got air and fluid. And so you put the paint in here, and as you press the air down, more or less air comes out, and you pull the trigger back, it allows more or less fluid to come out. So you're spraying a very fine mist. Okay. It's been around for a long, long time, like 200 years-ish. Really? It has. It was used many, many, it wasn't perfected. You know, the quality of the, of the equipment was not that good, but the effect was there. In fact, if you think about it, it goes all the way back to cavemen. They would take pigment in their mouth, they'd put their hand on a cave wall, and they'd spray. And so you'll see these handprints in somebody's, uh, old caves, and that's what they've done. That's how they got it there. Mm. They didn't have brushes. They didn't have anything. So they would spit the pigment on, and you can see it. It's uh, Basically, it was first graffiti, spray can type of thing. But um, So airbrushing is a, is a beautiful thing because it gives you, well, anybody who's done Photoshop knows what airbrushing is because there's a tool, airbrush tool, or, mm-hmm. okay, blending and fading and all that. There's a beautiful art to that because what you have to do is you have to know in advance or have learned or, or train yourself to understand that Certain pigments overlapping other pigments are going to create another color. Yeah, everybody knows. You know, the primary colors, secondary colors. But not so much when you're fading things. Because now you can fade four or five different colors and all these. Uh, look at your screensaver that does all that wavy stuff. Mm-hmm. Imagine trying to do that by hand, painting it. Right. Or look at some of these cars, whether it's low riders or, you know, flames on a hot rod or what have you. Um, that stuff is all done with an airbrush. Sometimes a big gun, sometimes small. But it's all done in a way that you're taking an odd-shaped surface most of the time and you're putting something just beautiful on it. Now they can do it with wraps, mm-hmm. which is pissing me off. <laughs> it really is. Again, another lost art. You know, you're not going to find too many shops that will do airbrush artwork. Uh, you'll find an occasional person who works there. They probably do the wraps, but on the side they'll do airbrushing, what have you, because it's, it's quicker, it's cheaper, it's uh, a little more durable. Uh, to do a wrap because you can you know, if something screws up you go print another one you stick it on there. right but we're losing we're losing the 
traditional arts mm-hmm. very quickly. That bothers me. Uh, when I was teaching, in fact, I was teaching at a place called Art House here not too long ago. I just quit recently for reasons, uh, good reasons. I mean, they're good people. I had I had issues. Um, and a lot of the people that would come in, students would come in, and I, I basically start off with, you know, what's your level of art? What do you like to do? And and if they say, well, I'm an artist, and they say, what, are your, you know, what type of medium? And a majority of them will say, oh, Photoshop or Corel or something to that effect, something digital. And I have to kind of restrain myself a little bit because uh, <coughs> everybody has a different opinion on this. But as an instructor and as an artist, I see that as graphics, which is wonderful. And we kind of briefly touched on this earlier. Uh, you can be a phenomenal artist, and when you use a computer, you make phenomenal graphics. That's great. There's nothing wrong with that. That's your end result. But people get offended with me and say, well, it is art. Well, it is art. You're putting art into this. You're making phenomenal stuff, beautiful. And your, your, your perceptions and all your stuff are, are right on cue. But when you print this out on a printer, you've created graphics. Okay? It's, it's not to be uh, put aside or discarded, but it also can't be put into the same vein as a sculpture. Uh, where you know you're doing this, you make a mistake. That mistake's going to be there forever. Mm-hmm. There is no Command Z. Yeah. There is not. You can't just dry and then paint over it. Right. You know, it's now suddenly you know David has smaller head and the arms are now you know <laughs> yeah. because that's what you've done. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, and I, I almost used the term real art, but what I mean is uh, hands-on conventional art with conventional mediums is falling by the wayside because partly because it's not being taught anymore mm-hmm. uh, but also it's not something you have the capability to do everywhere you can't go home and just start sculpting your wife right. will throw you out right. you know that living room was a living room damn it right. it's not supposed to be <laughs> yeah. you know or even the kids students they can do everything on the laptops or on the computers mm-hmm. and be creative and be artistic and do all these different things but when they when they sit down to do a painting they're clueless and I understand that's not their fault they have the vision and maybe they have the drive and they're excited to do it. But when it when it starts not going their way and there's no way to fix it immediately, that's because they don't have the foresight as to what's going to happen when I do this. When I touch this to that, there's an effect and I can't change it or it's going to take you know some, change, some work to change it. I appreciate when a student is going from, <coughs> excuse me, from that first aspect of Oh, I'll just whip it out and you know change it as I want on the on the computer. Mm-hmm. To oh my gosh, I have to think about every line and every mark I make because it's going to be part of the end piece. It's going to affect everything I do from there on out. And some people uh, catch on to that very quickly because they are artists, true artists inside, and that comes out and they're able to do that. Other people just can't get over that. Uh, wouldn't call it a real hurdle, but more of a just a little bump. And they're stuck there because they don't realize or they've never been given uh, the opportunity to, to fail. Mm-hmm. Computers give you an opportunity to never fail. If you don't like it, you delete it. It's yeah. gone. And no one ever knows. Or you know, Undo. Undo. Yeah. Command Z or you know, layer by layer by layer, which is great. Again, it's a phenomenal tool, but it takes away the artistic advantage that uh, somebody who go, you know, someone who goes out and spray paints walls at night, they're creating Mm-hmm. You know, they're excited. They're, they're doing, even if it's on, you know, your wall and you don't want that. Yeah. What they've done is still artistic, very uh-huh. creative. Um, and I, I think, well, I'm not sure where I was really headed with that part of it, but 
<coughs> I think by having such a digital world right now, as necessary as it is, it's taking away from our ability to to advance in other, not just professions, but other hobbies and careers and interests. Because as as an artist, even a, a novice one, if you understand uh, eye-hand coordination and when you touch something and you make marks that isn't digital, <coughs> I apologize for the Excuse oh, me. Oh, you're fine. Cheers. I can edit them out after. Mm. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh, yeah, okay. Mm. <coughs> okay, so uh, if you're if you're old school or you're given old school uh, skills and talents and, and training, mm -hmm. you can take that into any profession, any profession at all, whether it's nursing or something. Uh, um, uh, if you're a tax, if you're an accountant, a lawyer, a tax, whatever it is, you're going to see things differently than somebody who doesn't have any artistic background. Whether it's the people coming to you with information that you can see in a different way, mm -hmm. or it's your ability to give them information in a more creative way, doesn't not really just art, but creative. Sure, you're understanding how to open your mind and say, "Ooh, other ways to look at it." That works uh, for analogies. It works for you know, a lawyer who can who can say something in five different ways, and it all means the same thing. That's creative. Mm -hmm. uh, a tax attorney who can you know work numbers and and do that. There's there's an art to that as well. I have zero ability with numbers. I, if you ask me to do your taxes, you have just gone to jail, my friend, because I <laughs> cannot do it. And I can't dance. Neither can I. So those two <laughs> things elude me. But uh, having this, having drawing skills or painting skills or anything past, I'm going to say past fifth grade. Because in those early stages, they teach you this stuff. I was going to say teach you so much as allow you because it kills time. Mm -hmm. Gives the teacher time to do whatever she's doing, he should do what he's doing, while you're finger painting and making a mess. Mm -hmm. That's great. You need the hands on, the tactile, the smells. You need to know what it smells like for, to put poster paint on it, on, you know, on some kind of you know, butcher paper and, and get it all over your hands. You're supposed to do that. That's what, yeah. that's what we're supposed to do. Uh -huh. um, and cutting back on our classes is eliminating a lot of the hands-on knowledge that kids need for other things. Mm -hmm. For other jobs, for other careers, um, if you you know become a baker, that's an art. But those things don't come late. You need to start those things early. You need to understand what it's like to work with your hands and you know and form things and and basically you're sculpting with with dough. Mm -hmm. Same thing. It's very artistic. I used to be a baker. Really? I to, yeah, I was a baker up at Alta, the Peruvian Lodge, huh. and the Alta Lodge years ago, back in the early eighties. Can you I, still bake? Can you still bake those same types of things? Uh, I probably could, but I don't. I just I tend not to. It's been a while since I've done breads, which I love breads, um, but I still I still cook a lot because to me that's a good creative outlet, and, and the end result is wonderful because you can eat it. Right, yeah. right, yeah. Couldn't do that on a computer. No, no, you can't there undo. You go. Yeah, yeah, you cannot. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I actually really agree with what you're saying. I've noticed that as well. When things become more digital, um, and there's no consequences to mistakes, yes. it it kind of trains you to find an easier, quicker way instead of actually the right way, necessarily. Yes, I agree. Because when you can control, alt, delete, and then all of a sudden you can just start over and it's okay, or you can just do, oh, that last stroke wasn't right. I'll go one stroke back. It takes away a little bit of the risk mm -hmm. that I feel makes art so impressive. You're right. When you see a sculpture, you see it, and you know that you're seeing something that is perfect in the sense that 
they did it the exact way that they wanted to do it and they didn't have to redo it. Yes. Uh, yeah. Good. That's a great way to, to see that because realistically, um, with what you just said, photographers have taken a beating uh, as artists as well. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a time when you took pictures and you took the film and you went into your darkroom and you developed it. And you could manipulate it a little bit here and there or do some certain things, bring things back or forth and what have you. Mm-hmm. But you had to have the skills and the knowledge to do that. Yeah. And if you did it wrong, right into the trash, you had to do it again, yeah. start over. That moment is gone. It is, exactly. Yeah. And if you're trying to capture a particular moment in time, literally, you want it to be right. And so manipulating uh, original uh, film photography was an art, is a skill. And it's a, a long-held skill. Mm-hmm. You know, that you pass down. Not so much anymore with your digital camera. You know, 30, 40 frames a second, and you pick the one you like the best, and then you you mucky about with it, you know, on your computer, and, and suddenly it becomes not even what you started with. But it's a good start. Mm-hmm. Again, if you're selling that as your, as, your, as your art, that's great. If you're selling it as a photo, it's not anymore. It's become a piece of art, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But you've had so much opportunity to alter it and change it and, and mess around with it that you had to that you that you no longer have the original image you really don't mm-hmm. and and i i have some photographer friends who both love and hate that's that fact mm-hmm. uh, because people don't look at their their pictures that are authentic photographs that caught at the right moment they're very fortunate they don't look at those the same. They're like, oh, well, I would have brought up the color. I would have done. And they're thinking, no, no, you don't understand. This is what I saw. This is what, uh-huh. this is the color of the of the animal and the and the stuff around it. Yeah. This is, there was no manipulation. This is how it looks. But had they put it on a computer and, and, and changed things, they probably would have appealed to more people because we ex- people expect that now. Mm-hmm. As a medical illustrator, I was running into that a lot. My illustrations are all done by hand. I don't do computer art with that stuff. It's all hand drawing. I do scan it and I do add color and change things because it's necessary. But the artwork itself, I've had clients or potential clients in some cases say, oh, well, we're going to go with the guy who does the computer stuff. Well, I've seen his stuff. It's not It's not as good. It's not as accurate. And for medical art, you need it to be accurate. Right. The, the quality of the image itself, the, the creating um, the artwork, kind of comes second to telling a story for that. You know, I'm, I'm creating something that you need to use to save lives or to pass along how to save lives or to change people's lives. And having a poor illustration makes it more difficult for you. You may not notice it right away, but the people you're trying to teach, you know, if you're doing a research paper or what have you, that image has got to say everything you want it to say. You've got to say all this stuff, all the pages behind that image should be able to show up right here. And if the quality of the of the illustration, I don't again, I don't mean the color and stuff like that. I mean the image, what it says. <coughs> Excuse me. The anatomical or biological uh, issue that you're addressing needs to be addressed correctly. Mm-hmm. If it's not, you're teaching incorrectly, and that that has a cascade effect. Yeah. Uh, but they'd rather go. A lot of them would rather go with the kid who does it on a computer. And it's just kind of so-so. It's not correct. It's kind of good, but it's flashy and it's glossy and yeah. it's, everything is bubbly and round and you know it's three-dimensional. That's fine if you you know if you're looking for uh, aesthetics versus accuracy. Mm-hmm. And granted, there are some people that do both. They're very good. Sure. That that tool for them was exactly what they need to create something like that that does both jobs. 
But in the end, there's, there's nothing that replaces artwork. Art stands alone. Uh, there are other things that can supplant it, can be used in, in its stead. Mm-hmm. But to, if you opened up uh, a book of Leonardo and everybody just goes gaga over his sketches and his drawings, yeah. because they're, and they're done by hand, they just imagine, oh, this long-haired, bearded guy drawing with his left hand going the wrong way uh-huh. by a candlelight. That's <laughs> so romantic. Thing is, look at his artwork. It's phenomenal. Uh-huh. And most of it's not correct. <laughs> right. It's not. It's I've not. seen his anatomy when yes. they have like the, the traps and the, the ribs that yeah. are totally wrong and stuff like that. <coughs> I mean, obviously, they didn't have the same. Well, uh, science slash art was in its infancy for a while there and stayed there for a long time. Uh-huh. Uh, if you look at his anatomical uh, dissections of uh, fetuses, uh, a, a pregnant woman in this... At the time, a lot of people still thought you know the humors of the body were what you know made you crazy, what have you. The fluids in your body, your liver, your heart, your lungs, all these different things uh, that your brain was just a thing. Right. You know, your heart is where all your emotions came from, and all your activity and all your actions came from your heart. Yeah. So if something, if you were something was wrong with you emotionally, what have you? Well, we better bleed you. We better, you know, make a cut and bleed you for yeah, a while. Put a leech on there. Put a maybe. leech on you. Yeah. You know, put some herbs in your ears. Uh huh. <laughs> And it, and it really was. It was like that for a long time. Uh, a lot of that had to do with the fact that uh, because rigid religion ruled in all over the world in different times and different ways, it was very difficult for anybody to get a hold of an actual human body mm-hmm. legally mm-hmm. and do dissections. Okay, So what they did for a long time was they'd take other creatures and they would uh, anthropomorphize these and they would say, okay, monkeys, just like a human with no hair. Mm-hmm. So they dissect the monkey and they would use that as their stand-in for a human being while teaching medicine, or what you might call medicine at the time, uh, herbalism, what have you. But the anatomist could not, without going, without risk of going to jail, open up a human being because the church or the religion said, you do not desecrate a human body. Mm-hmm. And yet they're slashing people open in right. wars all around the world. Yeah, killing people. Killing people yeah. wholesale. But you couldn't go in for scientific reasons because science was not... a it wasn't a, an appreciated thing. Um, it was cha- partly because it went against church rules. Well, you found out this happens in, in nature. Well, that's not true. It came down from above. This was right. a, you know, the earth is not the center of the universe. Right. Yeah. yeah. How dare you disprove something yeah. that's you know in our doctrine? It's uh-huh. in our book. Yeah. And it's still that way today in a lot of ways. Uh-huh. A lot of a lot of places are like that. And I still marvel at the fact that uh, I, I won't. Some of you may be so inclined so i won't get into who does what uh-huh. but a lot of times you just shake your head and go really in this day and age right really yeah and and it's people that are educated who still follow this doctrine but back then it was it was different uh you know they would steal bodies for this purpose of, of mm-hmm. dissection and uh, when you get into people like titian who was a, a amazing artist a lot of his stuff was done in engraving or pen and ink and he does, or did, uh, phenomenal anatomical drawings. Uh, filleted people where they literally cut the stuff and they peel it back. And his drawings represent all the muscle and tissue. And he wasn't always correct in, in what things were. Mm-hmm. And also, he would embellish a little bit, <coughs> excuse me, as far as uh, representing certain muscle groups and stuff like that. But the fact that he actually had bodies stolen for him, dug up, Mm-hmm. Or you know uh, peasants that passed away and no one noticed, 
they became property of, you know, for a brief <laughs> right. time. Uh, but his his stuff was fantastic, and there was a there was a period where science and art finally were allowed to uh, come together. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, and at that time they were also learning about not just uh, science and, and art, but but the medicine itself. You know, what does the heart actually do? You know, this brain does what? You know, and mm-hmm. all these different all the different organs suddenly had lives of of their own. And they were represented as such, you know. You and that changed medicine, which again conflicted with religion. Mm-hmm. So it went into a dark period again. Um, there were, let's see, endless, but there were years and years of conflict over this. When, if you were trying to advance health and human. You know, reduce human suffering. Mm-hmm. You were considered a heretic, right? How dare you? Know, you don't. Me- this person is meant to die. Meant to die through this this particular way. And for you to try and prolong it, it was very difficult. So, a doctor's job was was really to assist somebody on their journey to death, which is so against the HIPAA thing right now. You know? Right? Yeah, you know, kind of the opposite. Your doctor really, you know, they don't get paid now if, they, if you, you know. Or right. shouldn't get paid if you die. That's my. Opinion. They are there to give <laughs> solutions now. Right. Yes. You're trying to fix the problem instead of just hurry it along. Uh, we stopped using monkeys for uh, to stand in for humans, and uh, in fact, India was the first place that started doing that, which is kind of crazy because they were also the ones that were so against it. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, a lot they a lot of drawings came out of India. Really? Yeah. Huh. I didn't know. Kind that. of bizarre. Yeah. Um, one thing I found really interesting, specifically with your style, because it's very much where function and art meet, because you're actually creating art that mimics reality, specifically with uh, medical. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- what do you think is the relationship between function and, and fashion, or I guess, you know, where something can be artistic and silly, but also accurate? Okay. Um... That's a good question. That's a good question because there is a place for that. Mm-hmm. I think it, it ha- I would think it would have to do with who the the viewer of the art is. If it's somebody of intellect who has a silly side, they're going to want something that appeals to both left and right brain. Mm-hmm. Right brain being the artistic, left brain being the more analytical. Mm-hmm. Um, it might bother them if this really cool painting isn't correct. Sure. And so the, sure. the accuracy of this, yeah. even if it's cartoonish or if it's silly or whatever it is, uh, if it's mocking something, it, it would not appeal to them if it were strictly cartoonish. But the fact that it has maybe the lighting or the color or something gives it a, a, a realism, that just eats right into this side. And they're like, oh, I love that. And I don't know why. Yeah. And most of them <laughs> don't know why. And that's okay. But they like it. That's what art's supposed to be. It's supposed to evoke an emotion. And if if they don't like it because of the subject matter, but they love it because of the way it was created. Mm-hmm. That's very much the right brain side overwhelming the left brain. Sorry, you were saying. Oh, I was saying um, art is subjective mm-hmm. and who the person is that's looking at it is going to, their first reaction is usually their honest one. Mm-hmm. If they don't know that you're standing there next to them or behind them and you can, you're within earshot, they'll, they'll say exactly what they think about it. And I've had that many times. I'll yeah. stand there at an art show, just kind of my back to the wall and listen. <coughs> And either be very pleased or, 
or a little off, you know, put off a little bit by uh -huh. comments. But you don't say that to them. You just, most of the time, you just let them go. And that's fine. They're not interested in your art or they don't like the subject matter. And, um, and that's fine. It's fair. Exactly what you're supposed to do is evoke an emotion, even if it's negative. Uh, there are some artists out there that do that on purpose. They're, they love, they troll. Their job is to, in their mind, is to piss off everybody in the art world and all the viewers as well. Uh -huh. And you know what? They're famous. Everybody knows them <laughs> because of the negative. You know, um, I don't like the negativity in it. Um, I also don't like the commercialism of art in a lot of ways. But if you hear somebody who's talking about your art or any piece of art in a positive way, it's affected them. Mm -hmm. uh, they've taken that in and, and it means something to them. And that's probably why they'll either buy it or they'll follow that artist. Uh, in one way or another, whether it's going to the shows or, or purchasing. And not everybody can purchase art. It can be expensive. It can be overly expensive. Sure. Um, and I think I, I have a difficult time putting a price on anything that I do, uh, unless it's for a client who has a budget and that's what they want. Um, when I do a painting, like I said, I'll do a sketch that somebody would probably sell. I give it away because to me, this person smiled. You know, this, this little girl loves, you know, llamas. And I drew yeah. a llama. Okay. Yeah. And she'll always remember that. Definitely. Or some kid likes, you know, airplanes and I'm doing F-16s. It's like, there you go, kid. Uh-huh. One day I'll be dead and they're going to have that on their wall. They'll be like, oh, eBay. <laughs> and that's fine. Right, And right. that's fine. Uh, but reactions to art, uh, I love both positive and negative, And especially when it's an up-and-coming artist who's being either... Uh, reviewed or uh, is in a gallery of, and, and doesn't know you know how, how to how to react to the responses I've been there a few times I don't do a lot of gallery stuff very rarely I no I, no in fact I'll do the art show at Port Yorick every six months because I love it I love the environment I love the people yeah um, and the crowd you know it's a good crowd it's fun people but I have never really been a put my stuff in a gallery you know, because I don't have an ascot and a pipe and a, you know, <laughs> and a blazer with a turtleneck. I don't have that stuff. That's not yeah. me. Um, I would rather have somebody call me and say, hey, I saw, you know, a friend of mine has a piece of yours and I want to take a look. What else do you have? What can you do? That to me is, is successful. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's a good, good feeling because they sought you out. They weren't just coming by on an art stroll. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they were not drinking and had nothing else to do, or right. which you get all you get all sorts through an art show, yeah, which is fun. An art show is different because everybody knows that's the time and place to do it. A gallery, it's it's hit or miss. It's happenstance. Somebody may come by and they go, oh well, I, you know that's kind of you know that's very pedestrian or that's you know a little she she type people. But others come in and they really like the work and they'll buy it. But I don't. But you're not there to hear the response. And I love the response. Like I said earlier, I love to stand back and just listen to what they say. Good yeah. or bad. Because yeah. that's an honest reaction. <coughs> Excuse me. It doesn't really formulate my next piece because, I, again, anything I'm going to hang on a wall to sell, I did for me. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I drew that or painted that because I thought it was fun. Or I had an idea and I just wanted to put it on paper. And if someone else likes it, Wonderful. That's great. If, if it doesn't sell a single one, but everybody likes it, wonderful. I still yeah. like it. Uh, but if I were, I guess if I were a little more commercial, and if I had more time, mm -hmm. you know, I do work a regular nine to five, I would probably, I could probably put out a whole line of just, you know, the same thing, a little bit different here and there. And I started to do that. Or I felt like I was doing that with my octopuses. 
which I have a whole line of octopuses. Go online and check out my stuff. <laughs> yeah. In fact, that's one of the first ones that I saw. Okay. Was the octopuses. And I did those for fun. I actually was, there was a time when I was going to the park after work and stopping there for about an hour. It's just to, to you know, relax from the day from work. And I was sitting, I'd draw. And I'd sit in the park and I'd sketch and half of them I handed out. In fact, there are probably a good dozen or more people out there that have sketches just like the ones that I'm selling. Yeah. Just because they happen to be walking by and with their dog and, and whatever the deal was. Uh-huh. But I would sit out there and I would I was working on uh, just sea creatures in general because I'm a beach guy. And I did an octopus and I realized with my medical training that it was very much like drawing the intestines or the insides of a human mm-hmm. or, or a creature. <coughs> Excuse me. And also being an architect and engineer and different things that I do, building this architecturally and having the shapes fold and bend and mush together and, and still be soft and puffy uh, or swollen or, or whatever whatever it needed to be for uh, when you twist something, it expands. You know, if you take a, like a, a balloon art, you know, balloon animals, mm-hmm. if you take it just a, and you twist it, suddenly this expands or this gets longer or does this. Same thing with, with anatomical you know, creatures, especially with no bones. Mm-hmm. So when this octopus is, is winding around itself and it's got the, the arms are wrapped around and something's pushing and pulling or, or stuck to something else, putting in all the effects of those motions and contortions and, and twists, for me, is an architectural challenge. I love it. How do you make it look more realistic? How do I make it look like that skin is stretching, but this part is bulging, and this yeah. has a, you know, there's something underneath that, and it bumps out. How does it look like a real thing? Uh-huh. So playing around with techniques, uh, uh, trying different styles of, of highlighting and, and shadows and shading and all these different things, and I try and break it down to its simplest form so I can quickly sketch it. <coughs> Excuse me. I'd say 90% of what I do is sketching. Uh, only because, not only, but... but because first of all, that's the basis of almost everything. Mm-hmm. Whether it goes on to become a painting or a, a you know full illustration, a drawing, what have you, the sketch is your rough draft. So, whittling down all the the techniques and stuff that I've learned over the years and, and the way I teach is gives me an opportunity to take that savant thing, that idea in my head that I can spin right away mm-hmm. and quickly put it on paper with, uh, in an economical way. I get my first couple of lines in there, and I know right away if it's right or wrong. And it gives you a chance to change things. And that's how I teach my students as well. It's called organic sketching. And when I do that, uh, the octopuses were, were fun because they just roll out. Like this arm just keeps going. Where is it going? Yeah. And uh-huh. there's no right or wrong because they can extend them and they can bring them in. If I want to make this thing long, that's great. Or, or short, that's fine. And that was, that was fun because it was almost uh, this octopus that I saw in my head was already there. But unlike other things, it was constantly moving in my head. Mm-hmm. I had to catch it. I had to, you know, I'm drawing, well, that arm is doing, well, wait a minute, it's got to go like this because the other arm wraps around here. Uh-huh. The more tortuous and, and uh, convoluted I tried to make the, the, the limbs, the more realistic and comical, almost hilarious type of interaction with itself. You know, it's confusing itself. It's getting itself all jumbled up like a ball of snakes. But in my mind... I know where that arm goes. I know exactly. It's like uh-huh. a Rubik's cube. I I can see, yeah. and I can see why it interacts with the other one. I can, and for me, that's the fun of it. And trying to do it right the first time. When I sketch, I don't erase. Okay, interesting. I do not erase, because a sketch is a rough draft. Anything that you put on a rough draft, if you're writing a paper or a novel, you sit down, you quickly, you know, write some stuff out. 
uh, spelling errors, uh, sentence grammatical, everything's wrong. But you're laying down the basics for this. You say, pa, 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 pa. okay, this character, he's doing this and she's doing that. And the same thing with my sketching. <coughs> I take the idea that's in my head and I start to work things quickly. And all the lines that are there represent something. They represent an idea or a direction or a concept of that particular object. So once I get the basics in there with basic shapes and, and figure out where stuff goes, it's a rough composition. Mm -hmm. And then I can start to flesh it in just like you would with characters. Oh, wait, you know what? Uh, because he has this you know, certain thing about him, he's able to do this, which I didn't mention before, but now you know. Yeah. I, couldn't, I didn't think of it till just now because, you know, when she yeah. did, same thing. When this arm comes around, hey, wait a minute, this has got to go, oh, that means that the things are going to be same thing. It works that way for me when I'm doing the sketches. And it allows me to not only change things as I go, but to still see it forming in my head as it changes, which is the fun part. It, and when you're... Your drawing skills are second nature. I'm not struggling to make the lines, and that makes it flow easier. So when I teach my students certain techniques, I do it so they have the skills at their fingertips, literally, to make certain lines in certain ways, and they're comfortable and they're natural. They don't have to, you know, they don't have to, again, back to driving analogy, you don't have to worry about, okay, stick, mm -hmm. clutch, brake, shift, gas, sit. You're not doing that. You're simply driving, but you're, yeah. watching, you're watching the road as you go, and this mm -hmm. is all second nature. Yeah. Same thing with the drawing. You know, I know how to make these lines. I know how this feels. I know how to emphasize it, how to de-emphasize. I know where to, but those are all, they all come natural, or I should say they come natural to me, but they come second nature to somebody who's practiced them mm -hmm. enough times. Right. They have the fundamentals down enough that they don't have to think about that. They're thinking about their vision rather than how does this line go or am yeah. I shading this right? Yeah, exactly. And the more successful they are at that, uh, the more fun it is to draw, yeah. to sketch. Yeah. And that's that's the, the fun part for me is to watch the progression. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I progress every time I teach somebody because not only do I go back to that very beginning, the very first, because I, I have to teach them how to do the... <clears throat> when I do my sketches, I do it exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've been doing this 40 years, or well, more than that actually, but um, it still goes back to the very first. Yeah. You know, again, your rough draft. You have to write the words down. You have to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. But back to why I don't erase is every line that's on there represents something. If you, I teach a, what I call a sparkler method. You're saying to yourself, what's a sparkler method? <laughs> <laughs> okay, you have a sparkler in your hand. Make a circle for me. Make a perfect circle. That's perfect? Uh, no, definitely not. Show, show, me, show me a perfect circle. Well, keep going. Okay. This? Somewhere in here. Yeah. Okay. Do you do this as a sparkle? You do a figure eight? Yeah. Do you do a perfect figure eight? Okay. I mean, probably not a perfect one, but... Right. But all the culmination of these lines, okay, they're still in your eye because of the light and the refract uh -huh. refraction stuff. But you see this. And eventually, part of this one, part of that one, part of this one, eventually you're going to yeah. see that perfect thing. Same thing when you sit down to sketch. You know, you're constantly moving and you're making the shapes you want. And those lines that are on the page when I sketch, somewhere in that jumble of lines, just like the sparkler, are the perfect parts that make up the shape that I actually want. Oh, interesting. So, and it's not little scratchy, scratchy lines, which I, try, I really try and get people to stop doing that because that's a hundred different lines. This is one line. Fluid. Right. Fluidity. In fact, that's what I teach is fluidity. And that's part of the organic sketching. So you're making these beautiful soft shapes and you change it as you go very, very lightly, just like you would a sparkler. Oh, I wait, I wanted it more vertical. Oh, wait, more. But you do this as you sketch 
and your brain says, oh, that feels good, or oh, I like that one, part of mm -hmm. that one. And eventually you have these very light lines that somewhere in all of those you find the perfect shape you want. And it goes from there very rapidly because they understand, okay, I can put down this information and I can watch it grow. I can change it as it goes. There's nothing so permanent there. But the lines stay there because afterwards, after the sketch, when you get to a certain point, all those lines keep life in the drawing. Mm -hmm. What you see, like those sketched lines, mm -hmm. you're going to see a different perfect than I am. But it's there. Right. And if I leave those other lines there, you're going to see perfect. I'm going to see perfect. Everybody's going to see it perfectly. But every one of them is going to be different. But I still score. Everybody yeah. thinks everybody thinks it's perfect. Uh -huh. Especially me. as Because that's what I see. And it's, it's a kind of a fun thing to look at this drawing develop and everything around it, all the scratchy crap that's still there that most people would erase and get real you know, peeved about, enhances the, the sketch work. It makes it more uh, lively, more realistic, uh, and it actually brings more pleasure because when I said to you that I remember every sketch line that I've ever done, I don't just remember out of my head, but if you show me the drawing, the sketch, I remember every mark that I made and how it felt to do it. It's because of that, because every one of them helped me develop that image. <coughs> Excuse me. And also, when you draw that way or you create that way, little bits at a time, you can take, if you're drawing from an object or, or uh, something, a description or something, you, can no you no longer need that visual to turn around and draw it again because you've given and you've taken so many times with this vision that you've got, it's now part of your memory. Mm -hmm. You know, if I if I spelled something out and you wrote it down, a word you've never heard before, and you did it four or five times, and I, and I said to you, hey, write that word we you know that you learned earlier. You don't need me to repeat it. You don't need to see it. You remember. It's right. this is your hand and I have made a connection, and on the paper you've made these marks and these shapes, and these forms, that all have now become part of your collective, your memory, and that's like that with anything you sketch or draw. Writing is just sketching. You're happen to be writing in certain, you know, mm -hmm. cuneiform, whatever, you know, yeah. whatever, whatever form you yeah. want to use. So teaching people that the more information you put on the page, the better mm -hmm. is is daunting to some of them. Yeah. Because you used to draw as a perfect circle. Well, that's it. You get no other choice. There are a lot of choices. And there's ways to do it. And I, I don't know where this this thought began, this stream of consciousness right, thought right. began, but but I like where it's going because it, it does give people who didn't realize they had a, a drawing ability at least a sense of technique and, and a skill set that they can work with. Mm -hmm. And so a new, a new artist uh, enjoys this because it's a very easy transition. And I get, also get artists who are fairly accomplished or you know very good or, or have been doing it for years who I actually take back to the beginning and I have to tell them at the start, I say, okay, this is not meant to be condescending. I simply want to start with the alphabet. Sure. What? What are you doing? I've, I've been doing this for... <laughs> I know what right. I'm doing. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Okay, well, so draw me, you know, draw me a certain... They're like... Ugh. And after 10 or 15 minutes, you're kind of like, oh, I should be using this. This is good. And I'm not trying to, you know, say I'm a great teacher, but I've, I've worked enough with this technique that I've never had it fail. I've never had an artist say to me, well, that was that was a waste of my time. Quite the opposite. And that, mm -hmm. that makes me feel good. That's like doing the sketch and giving it away. I've just given them something they can take and, and work with forever for the rest of their lives and employ it whether they're a painter or you know, a sculptor or whatever. Everybody sits down and does a sketch. And if it's more realistic and it's more fun, you're going to do more of them. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be more prolific and you're going to be, your end result might be better because the sketch you worked with was encouraging. 
as opposed to, oh, it doesn't really look like that, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and, and how many people have said, well, I'm not an artist, but I'll just draw this out. You don't have to be. You don't have to be an artist to have the skills. Right. You, know, you just have to understand that it's, it's like anything else, like math or science. You, know, you learn the rules, you learn the, the ways, and you go about doing it. Mm-hmm. And once you're able to do that, it's, it becomes a, a technique. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be skillful. Just know the technique. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the analogies that I was thinking of, you talked earlier about how using a computer or making art digitally, it kind of takes away from it because you can so easily manipulate it and you can undo stuff. But the technique you're teaching is intentionally not undoing. I mean, you don't even erase. Right. And so you're you're basically finding what you feel perfect by failing and failing and failing and failing. Exactly. And so that's probably yeah. why... And people that learn so much digitally don't have that same skill because it's not, it's like I have to create it perfectly in a snapshot rather than I will fail a hundred times to make this figure eight and then I get it perfect. Great. Yeah. Instant gratification. Yes. And you don't get it when you're sketching. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't say that. You don't, you don't expect it. But when it starts mm-hmm. to happen, then it's very pleasing. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, you know, sensual sometimes. It's, it just makes you go, oh. This is great. I love what I do. And, yeah. You know, and <clears throat> we also talked at one point about uh, uh, what's your environment like when you're working. Mm-hmm. You know, do you have music? Do you have TV? Do you do whatever? Um, there are different things that make you think and work differently. Mm-hmm. And obviously, music is one of them. You know, you crank the like we said, you crank up your Guns and Roses sometimes, and other yeah. times it's got to be. And yeah, yeah, it's exactly. It's got to <laughs> yeah. be the other end of the spectrum. Uh, and sometimes just quiet, but. Whatever it is that affects your mood, there's no reason you can't go with that. Just mm-hmm. remember that it's going to come out in your artwork. It's going to change the way you, you know, if you if, if somebody wants to try it, put on some loud rock or do so, you know something like that, a, you know, Gregorian chant or something, and then switch to uh, something very mellow, you know, some new age music or something, and you will find, and it may affect you negatively. You may not it may not be good for you, but at least you know, mm-hmm. you know, some people can sit in a, in a subway. And, and study, you know, with all trains going by and people going by and, and other people, you've got to be in this quiet little cubicle in a library to, to even get three sentences. Mm-hmm. And it's all a matter of concentration. Um, but when it comes to artwork, if you're, if you're looking at everything, things that are happening around you, you're taking in information. It's the same with the sound, okay? That sound comes in and it affects how you, your rhythm, it affects how you breathe, it affects how you concentrate, and all those things come out on paper or whatever, you know, whatever your substrate is. Um, there are there are times when uh, lighting can make a difference as well, change your mood, just your mood in general. You know, if you, if you go get stoned and you start drawing and it's beautiful, wonderful stuff, and the next day you look at it, it's like, oh, oh what is this? <laughs> well, that's okay, but you were relaxed and you had fun doing it. Uh-huh. That's what art's about. Okay? Uh-huh. It's not the end result. Somebody else might look at it and go, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. And you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, great. <laughs> uh, and uh, as far as how you draw and what you draw, there are also uh, changes in uh, dynamic changes when you change your substrate, the stuff you're using that you're working with. Um, I did a little write-up for uh, for the website recently about, it's called, you know, what you draw with. And there are things that you can that you can find pleasure in working with and others that you don't. Uh, charcoal. I hate charcoal with a passion. And it's not the end product. It's the feel of charcoal on paper or on any anything. That translates to me as almost painful to draw with. 
And other people just, they're wonderful with it. They smudge and they smear. They make beautiful, beautiful art, especially portraits and stuff. It's just gorgeous. Black and white photography quality almost. Mm -hmm. But for me, vine charcoal or anything like that, chalk. You don't like chalk? I hate, absolutely hate it. In fact, in the write-up, it even talks about how uh, when I was a little kid, again, I was an artist since I was born. So to me, it was all, it made sense to me. Uh, I would actually pretend to not know the answers to certain questions when I was asked to come up to draw, to write the answers on the board because I hated the way the chalk felt on the chalkboard. <laughs> so I would I would actually let me, allow myself to become, quote, the dunce for that moment uh-huh. because of my hatred of the feel of the chalk on the board. And you can't explain that to a teacher. You can't say, oh, I just didn't want to write it on the board because I don't like chalk. They would have, you know, back then, sure. backhand. Backhand was still acceptable. <laughs> right. Uh, but there were many, for years, I just, I would... Pretend to be the dummy in class so I didn't have to go up and write it. Maybe I forgot my homework or I didn't know how to do it or whatever it was. And it was bull. Mm-hmm. But it meant I didn't have to go up and write on the board. Now, I'm not afraid of being up in front of people. I'll talk all damn day. But the feel of that chalk on the board was, I hated it. Interesting. And it, and that's the only thing I can think of um, uh, medium-wise that I that I have that kind of a, uh, an emotion about. I don't like it either, actually. The feeling of it. Oh, good. Yeah, I, okay. I don't, I mean, I, I don't, I've never thought about it specifically but now that i am thinking about it writing with chalk kind of makes me cringe it's It's, like teeth grinding yeah it's chewing on foil or doing this on concrete it's just not yeah and then your hands are chalky afterwards and yeah that i never thought of that being an issue but so from the chalky hands to what do i like to draw with or work with um we're talking about how things change your mood when you yeah based on on what you do because drawing and sketching are such an eye-to-hand connection and mm-hmm. then your hand to the paper is the actual drive. It's your wheels to the road. Um, when you're working on a, a surface with a particular type of instrument, with a pencil, pen, marker, whatever it is, you're going to get a certain feeling for it. Uh, if you enjoy that feeling, you're going to you tend to it, it increases your uh, your concentration, but also it allows you a little more freedom. If you're struggling against the substrate, even if it's something you're enjoying to work with, if you're struggling against it, there's a stuttering in this progression in your drawing, in your sketching. And it's always going to feel that way. You're going to feel held back. Uh, if you take something that's smooth, you know, like a marker on a on marker paper, that's exactly why they have marker paper. So it takes the pen, the marker, the way it works best. When you're doing something like that, and it's free-flowing, and it's it's very liberating. It gives you, a, you know, you're now no longer thinking about pushing or pulling. Now you're just watching the line develop or the, the image develop. And that's a connection that's wonderful because that's very positive. Again, there's no there's no fighting it. If you're doing linoleum block where you print, you know, cut with the little tools, have you ever done that? No, I haven't. Oh, that's wonderful. That's fun. But you're doing this, it's constant pushing. It's carving. Uh-huh. And it's great. But there's something about it because the substrate is so forgiving that when you do it, you feel like you're using a pencil backwards. Like you're pushing a pencil instead of pulling it to uh-huh. make a line. And there's something fun about that. Uh, but you, when you screw up, it's permanent because you're carving into this thing. But that's a great feeling. Uh, it's a even if you do it just for fun, you know, do you, you know, on your on your desk at school when you're a kid, you ever do this? You Absolutely, see, yeah. Greatest days of the yeah. <laughs> uh, if you're working on uh, regular just paper with a certain color, if you like a color pencil or, or uh, graphite pencil, what have you, and you're struggling, you're having issues with maybe it's it's just not happening. It's not working. I've got the idea and I I know what I want, but it's just not working. Mm-hmm. Change colors. Change the color of your pencil if you're using like a green pencil or, or a blue or whatever, switch to something totally opposite. Go to an orange pencil or a red pencil 
and watch what happens. Mm-hmm. And, and give it a chance. Don't fight it and say, well, I'll just try this. Start fresh. Say, okay, I'm going to try this whole idea again. Go back in with a different color. A different color is going to give you a different feeling for what you're drawing. It could be the exact same thing. It may also not be working. The drawing may still look like shit. But for some reason, this color doesn't bother you. Interesting. And doing this in red or orange or you know or purple or something just feels okay. It's okay if I screwed up, but it feels better than maybe the blue. Uh-huh. And vice versa. It could be the other way around. Uh-huh. Give yourself a chance to adapt to your process and don't just, you know, it's 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 not immediate. You go back and you start from scratch. You say, okay, there were those soft lines. And don't rush to try and get to the point. You just you start over again mm-hmm. with a different color and it's gonna feed back differently. And you're gonna see it differently and feel and you might think to yourself, well, I like the green better. Well, then you go back to that, and you still now you feel better about the first attempt. But changing color, changing substrate, go from a, a rough paper to a soft, a smooth paper. Go from maybe a tinted paper. But all of that is a visual feedback, and it, and how you react to that is going to affect how you make the marks. And I thought that was interesting when I finally discovered that. No one told me that. Uh, I'm sure you know. I'm sure it's a knowledge, a known thing, but I've never. Heard it expressed, mm-hmm. you know that it's like putting on a different. You get dressed in the morning. Ah, blue shirt looks stupid on me. It looked the fine yesterday. It looked fine yesterday, and you had no problem with it. But today, for some reason, that blue shirt just doesn't work. Yeah, put on a you know a yellow shirt or a white one, and you're fine. Same shirt, same cut, same design, same everything, just a different color. You must feel like a different person. Yes, yeah, a different mood, <coughs> different feeling, even a different confidence. It is, yeah, it is a confidence builder, as a matter of fact, and that's what this does as well. Mm-hmm. It changes your your whole mood towards what you're what you're working on. Mm-hmm. And if you're working with graphite, go to color. If you're color, go to graphite. Um, Do you find that same thing with changing your environment? Like if yes. you if you're kind of sick of a specific drawing or you're getting blocked in some way, do you get up and go across the room? Yes, I usually take my dog for a walk. Interesting. Yeah, well, he wants that all the time, so that's always an outlet. But yes, to answer your question, I usually have two or three things going on, anyways. Okay. Uh, if I'm frustrated with the actual, the sketch or something that I'm working on, and I know I'm just going to screw it up, or it's two thirty in the morning, I know I should be quitting, which I do. I work till two in the morning sometimes. Yeah, right? most nights. Well, kind of in your when you're in flow and you don't want to stop. Is that yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, music going, and I was working, and uh, but if it's not working for whatever reason. I will switch over to another work piece that I'm working on. If it's just flat out the fact that I, I just can't work at that moment, but I still need to be in there doing something, I'll start a new sketch. Sometimes it's just a free form. It won't be an object or anything. It'll just be shapes and forms. And, or I'll think about what I teach my students, and I'll go in and do some fun little swirly things and just and work from there and see what happens. And then, again, I'm still playing with the techniques and making those stronger and emphasizing you know my skills, but without the chance of rejection. I won't reject this drawing because it means nothing to me. It's simply, you know, I'm I'm, I'm making yeah. a cookie dough. I'm not uh-huh. even going to cook it. I'm just going to eat the damn thing. <laughs> so you don't have to worry about, you know, yeah. the end effect. And that really, it does help, but it, it can be frustrating at times too because if I'm working on two or three pieces, they're in my head. I want to try and get those done. There's a reason I'm doing those in the first place. And if I'm being held up because of uh, an emotional situation or, uh, you know, something extraneous uh, maybe a timing thing I, I need to mm-hmm. I need I know I need to get up at 5 30 in the morning but it's three in the morning and I'm still working and now suddenly it's like that oh if I can if I get two hours sleep okay if I go to bed now that's not gonna work I've, I've made that type of negotiation with myself as well you were just saying changing your 
changing your environment. Changing your environment. Right. Yeah. Um, I, for many, many years, had a difficult time drawing in public. Okay. Uh, I still, I don't say I have a difficult time now, but I do, I have to think about where I'm going to be and who's going to be around me. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, I go to the aquarium on Saturday or Sunday mornings and I'll draw for an hour or two. And with people all around, people are very curious there. And as far as they're concerned, anything there is fair game to look at. And when you see somebody drawing, that's like a, a you know, a, a clown blowing up balloons. <laughs> Part of the whole I experience. Want one. Yeah, let me look at it. It is. <laughs> they, yes, they include you in the exhibit. Uh, so I have no trouble with that, no problem with that. Um, but I don't, uh, when I, when I'm actually working, working, which is really weird for some reason, maybe it's the environment because I love the aquarium. To me, that's a very home feeling place for me because I'm a water guy, um, that I don't mind the crowd, the people talking to me. But if I'm in the park working, I try and put myself in a position where my back is to something that I don't, where I can see people coming around me. Mm-hmm. Uh, at my office at work and in my studio as well, even in my studio when I'm alone, I have my everything positioned so I can see the door at all times. And I mm-hmm. don't know, there's a paranoia mm-hmm. that goes with, again, with being an artist, we have these little quirks and, and proclivities. And, um, but in this case, up at my office at work, I, I have to have my back to a wall and my drawing stuff in front of me so I can see who's coming and going. I don't like people looking at what I'm doing and I think part of it is because when something is not finished, you're going to get critiqued. And you don't critique something that's not finished. Yeah? Let me finish it, sure. and then I'll show it to you. Yeah. Or if I screw it up, you don't ever get to uh-huh. see it. Let me give you what I think you deserve to see, meaning in a good way, meaning this is what you're asking for. Don't look at my, my preliminary stuff because it may not be where I'm happy with it. Sure. And we have different levels. You know, I, I can scribble something out and somebody will go, oh, that's great. And I'm like, oh, that's so terrible. That's <laughs> I really do. I have that. Yeah. That's, I have a studio full of stuff no one will ever see till I'm dead. Um, just be, for that reason. You know, it, it, I needed to draw it and it's not good enough. I know it's not for what my intended purpose, but somebody else would see it and go, oh, that's great. I'm going to put it on the fridge. Yeah. <laughs> Say, thanks, mom. That was your fault, by the way. Uh, but I, I still... I guess if I'm there for a single purpose, which is to please the people who are there, like to draw for them, that's great. I can do that. I'll sit on a you know, bench and draw and people can gather around if I know that's what I'm there for. But if I'm there for my own personal drawing stuff, it's difficult because taking a, a mental break from the drawing repeatedly really breaks the concentration yeah. and, and the flow of things. And, I, mm-hmm. and I've noticed that the drawings don't come out as well or they're not mm-hmm. as pleasing to me. And, so I had to be careful. When I, I had a bus, I had a school bus. I sold it recently. I, I was <laughs> I was looking forward to seeing that. I, I'm sorry. We still can. Right. She has. She lives not too far from here. Oh, really? Bought it. Yes. Oh, it's one of the coolest <laughs> things I've ever seen. Oh, I really yeah, well, liked it a you. lot. And it was a great little place because I could pull into the park or anywhere. I uh-huh. still have my studio. I have a little studio in there, uh-huh. uh, and it was comfortable because again I could see both doors, and I, you know, I had my looking out the window, and that was. A great environment for me because it was enclosed. It was basically a studio on wheels. And well, drawing in public is, for some people, is, is part of the thrill of drawing, of painting. You see a lot of artists out there with the canvas and the easels and stuff. They, uh, they look for the attention. And that's not a bad thing. It's not, they're not attention whores. It's something that in them says, okay, I need the feedback. 
I want people to look at this and, and say, oh, I like that. Well, I kind of, oh, you're new at this. You know, whatever the response <laughs> yeah. is. And, it, and it, everything they say would affect me in a different way. I'd be like, I'm yeah. going to key your car as I leave. <laughs> you know, probably because, you know, maybe I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. And when it's not right for me, I don't think it's good enough at all. Uh-huh. It's probably not the fact. You know, it's probably different. Probably still pretty good. Yeah. But again, I have a I have a level that I think is worth showing, and everything below that, you know, I'm embarrassed by maybe a little bit. Yeah. Uh, that's why I don't do gallery showings. Uh, I don't I don't look for the attention, mm-hmm. uh, except if it's an event like Port York or something like that, where it's a fun. It's a basically a party all night long. Yeah. Then that's great because yeah. you know you come by and it's a one time thing and I'm gone. Um, but other environmental type of things, um, I draw better at night than I do during the day. Interesting. I don't know why. It might that might just be a circadian thing. You know, maybe I'm more awake at that time. Mm-hmm. And I don't sleep much anyway. I sleep three or four hours a night at the most. Really? Always whole life. Whole life. As a little kid, I, I remember just being up all night long, drawing or just being awake, being up and getting up early. I'd get you uh-huh. know, in Panama. Used to get up early in the morning and, and get on my bike. I had my short pants and a pair of shoes. That's it. I had a monkey. He'd sit on my shoulder and we'd go ride my bike. An actual monkey? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We'd go ride my bike, ride my bike up and down the streets and down towards the canal. And uh, <coughs> you know, Invariably, I had monkey shit on my back every day on the way to school. Uh, so, so for me, getting up early and going to bed late represented, uh, I think, a useful uh, – using the day to its best, to its Absolutely. fullest. Okay? It's an so, advantage for sure. Extra time. Is. Yeah, it really is. And I've always been that way. Uh, I actually met us. I was up on a hike one day, and I, I happened to run into a couple, and he was a sleep doctor, um, sleep studies. And I said, just offhand, I said, "Do you ever met anybody who sleeps three or four hours a night and always has?" He says, "No, they people they usually die young." <laughs> How young are <laughs> we like, talking? Yeah, I'm like, oh my gosh, doc. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's that was my first introduction to uh, why you should actually go to sleep at night, and I still don't believe it. I, I still don't like sleeping um, interesting I don't feel more rested after a long night's sleep no I feel, feel groggy no I feel anxious like I've wasted time like I've wasted three or four hours whatever the additional time that I've slept mm-hmm. beyond normal and I've always done that I've always I, and that leads to that leads to severe anxiety sometimes it's like oh my especially on a weekend and I don't mean just because it's a weekend because but because I know I don't have to go to work I have other work that I want to do. Even if it's just being up, I, being awake is more important to me than being asleep. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's one of those, I'm going to be dead longer than I'm alive. You know, might as well use all the hours yeah. I can now. Uh-huh. Uh, and most likely part of my health issues are because I don't sleep much. Uh, you know, you need to regenerate stuff. And, you know, medical school, you learn all these things. You're like, oh, problem is in medical school, you work, you're up. All night studying for medical yeah. school, and they're teaching you this. You should sleep eight hours a night. You really? should exercise. Well, then you shouldn't give like, me six hours of homework. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so it's kind of a dichotomy there. It's really interesting. Um, and I enjoyed medical school. I, uh, I enjoyed the art school as well. But something about the medical school was very left-brained. But it was also a challenge for me because, like I said, being able to take this information, process it, and see it in 3D. Every organ, every bone, every you know everything, all the cascading formulas, uh, the Krebs cycle, which is I still need to figure. You may not know what that is, mm-hmm. but uh, it's a cascade cycle of, 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 of a biological process. There's got to be a way to create that in a three dimensional thing. It's the only thing I couldn't figure out. Only 
nobody has. I mean, nobody, nobody's done this. But in my mind, it was like, damn it, I I can see all the parts. I need to figure out a way to draw it in three dimension. Uh-huh. And someday I will. That's that's kind of my quiet, hidden, secret goal until now. Everybody knows now. <laughs> I will find a way to uh, to create a three-dimensional drawing of a Krebs cycle cascade effect. What is that for the layperson like me? Uh, boy, uh, if you took a chemical and you broke it down, like you could draw a picture of a chemical, uh, like a molecule. Think yeah. of that. But this is different. This is a chemical. It's a, um, and you're breaking it down into, as it changes... Um, uh, another way to put this. Okay, your vision. You have rosin cones in your eyes. You've heard that. One's for yes. color, one's for dark, black and white. Okay. Um, you have chemicals, different. they come from different parts of your body, but they come together to react when you when you look at light and dark areas. When you go out in the bright light and then you go into a dark area, it takes a while to, to refocus. You know, you've got, well, because your liver. Did you know that? I did not. There know we that. go. Okay. I have okay. no idea. Okay. Well, you <laughs> because of your liver. Is that what you said? Yeah. So you, because of a chemical produced by your liver. And sure. If you don't, if you're low on that, you're gonna have trouble with your vision. You're gonna have different things. You know, there's a um, there's a chemical cascade from that happens almost instantly um, in your eye in the cones and rods of your eyes. It's uh, it's bathrodopsin, uh, bumerodopsin, uh, rhodopsin. Uh, scotopsin and it breaks it works its way down then you've got a catalyst and you've got an actin and then you, all these things come together and they have to act very quickly for you to see color and to see light and dark uh-huh. but it's constantly it's happening so quickly well you get to a certain point where that doesn't make sense to somebody well if I could draw it in a, in a form they're like, oh, well, that makes sense. It's a cascade. Bathrodopsin, boomerodopsin, metrodopsin one, metrodopsin two, you know, scotopsin. And it, but seeing it visually is, I feel like that's my job as a medical illustrator. It is, but as a human being who sees this in a certain way, I can draw that. I've done that. That's no problem. But the Krebs cycle is like drawing, you know, draw pi. You know, the, the right. mathematical <laughs> formula. Draw that for me. Yeah. Uh huh. I don't have. That doesn't exist. I don't understand how you know letters can be numbers and numbers can be letters. I don't understand right. that. But if if pi made sense to me, I would, be, I would probably be able to be able to draw it in a in a visual. Uh huh. It doesn't, uh, and that that frustrates me. That's been the one time you've been stumped. Basically, was the Krebs cycle. Yeah, I mean, it's a, you can write down the mathematical formula. Sure, That's, it's very simple. Uh-huh. As far as Right, goes. for some people. Uh, right. You know, in <laughs> chemistry, when I was in med school, we took chemistry class. I had uh, a TA who was from China. His name was Kai Bong Kim. Mm-hmm. I'll always remember Kai Bong Kim because he kept saying, take me skydiving, take me skydiving. <laughs> and I never did. I feel bad about that. But uh, he got me through the uh, chemistry because he let me draw out the formulas as opposed to write them out, because it didn't make sense in a lot of ways for me. Because chemically, I understood it. Um, but you break it down to its basics, and I got lost. But I could do it as a drawing. And he was okay with that. And he made that made sense to make sense to me. And at the same time, he was kind of flabbergasted that there's another way to look at this other than left brain. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's the only way I could look at it. So that led me into understanding how molecules worked, um, which made it easier for me to understand chemical breakdowns and compounds and, and how things work, you know, positive and negative. And that goes right into electronics and electrons and, mm-hmm. you know, how, how electricity works. 
which I still I still am baffled with some of the some of the ways or some some of the the effects of electricity on other chemical entities and stuff when you know they they take things and they subject it to electricity why does it change I don't know partly because I never had to know mm-hmm. but I'm interested it's like why? Why? And they're like, you, it's out of your wheelhouse. You don't need to know this. Yeah, but now I got a, a, a thing. It's in my head. What? I got to know this. And and it gets frustrating to me when I can't learn those things because I have other things that I have to learn. Uh-huh. And I don't want to be. I don't want to be Cliff Clavin. I don't want to be a know-it-all. You know, you don't know who Cliff Clavin. No, is. I don't know who that is. I'm so old. I know. I'm, I'm missing Shit. the reference. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, but yeah, I. Um, the things that frustrate me, frustrate me are the things that I cannot put down on paper into an image. Mm-hmm. And again, there are very few things that I've run into. Uh, I found that space and time and distance make wonderful sense to me. And I didn't think they would because they're mathematical. Mm-hmm. They're very left-brained. You know, cosmology, I love, love everything above this atmosphere. Mm-hmm. It's just fascinating to me. And the distances and, and how things, uh, you know, the expansion of the space and uh, all these things that were they're not a lot of these things are not that old the discoveries because we we didn't have we didn't have the technology to accept that these things are happening up until recently you know the fact that the universe is expanding right. and it's speeding up not just expanding it's speeding up mm-hmm. uh, and eventually it's things are going to spread apart so far and this is way in the future of course that when you look at the night sky, if we were still here, it would be almost black. You'd have one here, one there, one there. They're just because they're moving. Be so spread out. Yeah. Uh, 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 Brian Cox gave the greatest analogy that I can think of for that was if you had a lump of dough that had raisins in it, and you were sitting on one of those raisins, and you bake this, everything's moving apart. All the raisins are moving apart, and the ones at the outside are moving faster because mm-hmm. they're making room for the ones inside. They're moving apart and bigger and bigger and bigger. If you sat on a raisin, you're watching all of them move away from you at the same speed mm-hmm. or faster. And that's a very simplified version, but it makes sense. It's one that I can relate to, and, and other people are like, "Oh, well, that does make sense." Yeah. And they're all moving apart. Um, and as far as as cosmology goes, I the more we learn about that, the more it's. I wouldn't say it's difficult, but it's it's overwhelming visually to me uh, when, I, when I read something because I prefer to read it than see pictures. Because if someone else's picture, not only photos, but I mean pictures, they're drawing an artist rendition of. I don't want to see that because I think I have my own ability to, to take the information if it's well written and create my own visual. Mm-hmm. And I'm fine with that. I'm probably wrong half the time, but I enjoy it more. And that's what it's about is enjoying mm-hmm. it. Uh, <clears throat> funny, I was just talking with my mother about this the other night. I don't know why we just were uh, about Beetlejuice. You know, mm-hmm. the, it's, I haven't seen it. Okay, talking about the movie? No, about the, the star, Beetlejuice. Oh, no, star. I didn't even know that was a star. Oh, okay. That shows how little I know well, there about we cosmology. Go. Okay, well, that's where it came from, <laughs> the name Beetlejuice. Uh-huh. But it's actually spelled different. But it's fading, and they're not quite sure why. It's a very large, bright orange star, but for some reason it's very, very dim right now. Mm-hmm. And it's so far away from us. It's 640 light years away. Uh, that If something happened to it, it would take 640 years for that information to get to us. We wouldn't even know until then. Unless it happened 639 and a half years ago, <laughs> right. then we'll know in six months. We'll, about, we'll find exactly. out soon. Yeah. That's just it. Uh-huh. We can't really tell how long ago whatever it is is calling it to fade mm-hmm. happened. But it might go supernova, which is wonderful because we've never seen one in our lifetime. You know, a star goes supernova. Um, 
So it could have gone supernova 640 whatever years ago, and we wouldn't exactly. know yet. Yep, you know, it could be a week from tomorrow that it shows up, <laughs> and that would be that'd be phenomenal because it would, you know only last a few months maybe uh, before it started to dim. Um, but things like that, I, I'm just so intrigued with, you know. And I, mm-hmm. then I start to learn all about you know supernovas, and I learn about you know it's it's a uh, it's a red giant star, gas mm-hmm. giant star. Uh, in fact, if you put it in our solar system, it would go up. Uh, probably to probably to Saturn. It would cover that much. Like this table would be that when actually our sun is right here, Earth, you know, this, it would cover that big. Mm-hmm. That's how huge it is. Right. It's massive. But for some reason, it's dimming, which means it might be getting smaller. If it's getting smaller, it's going, probably going to go supernova. That's what they do. You know, they say that we're, we're made of, you know, stardust, star material. Mm-hmm. And we really are. Um, do you care to know? Absolutely. Okay. Well, yeah, most definitely. <laughs> okay. Uh, most stars, well, stars are, are, they're burning balls of hydrogen and helium. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they're constantly churning. Okay. They're just nuclear fusion. And gravity is the strongest force in the universe, yet it's the weakest. Okay. We know that by, I just did this. I just defeated gravity and raised my hand from the ground. Mm-hmm. Held it up. Do this all day long. I'm defeating gravity. But it's pushing down on everything at such an even and constant and constant rate and, and pressure that this ball of gas that's burning and exp- wanting to expand is being held in by gravity. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a mutual thing. They might expand and contract a little depending on how much you know. Our sun burns uh, three hundred million tons or three hundred three hundred. I'm sorry, six hundred million tons of hydrogen every second. That's a lot of. Yeah. I mean, it is. It's turning hydrogen into helium, uh-huh. but it does that constantly. It roils and boils, and it expands a little, and it contracts, you know, just depending on gravity waves and stuff like that. Well, a star is helium and hydrogen, and those are the two first things on the element table of uh, elements mm-hmm. you look at, okay? Well, if all of a sudden it starts to run out of energy, helium, maybe it's burning up all the stuff, suddenly it doesn't have enough to keep it pushed out like this. The balloon is now going to start to shrink, and when it does that, Gravity is pushing it in on it, and the more gravity pushes in on it, the smaller this gets. It'll eventually get so incredibly uh, explosive and intense that it literally blows up. It defeats gravity and just blows up to a supernova. Well, what happens is the hydrogen and helium, they become fused and they become heavier, heavier elements. So you work your way down the periodic table of elements. Mm-hmm. They didn't tell me this in school. This would have been so cool. I would have made, paid attention to this. <laughs> right. to the, you know, they didn't tell me this The either. numbers and letters. Yeah. So... What happens is these condense and they become, they work their way all the way down to iron, you know, boron and, and uh, helium and hydrogen and all these things, or helium and, um, you know, sodium and all these different elements literally are compacted or are created as this thing is compacted. And when it blows up, all this stuff scatters into the, to this, into space, into outer space. Mm-hmm. And eventually, the, sometimes they co- these hard solid objects now, it's not just gas, it's, now it's iron and nickel and, and cadmium and all these other different things. They're they're dust, and, but they start to coalesce and they spin and they catch. Gravity pushes them together and they become a planet, just like ours. This was all made from shit that was flying around in space from supernovas, because mm-hmm. they they goes from gas and they get so compressed it compresses it into solid forms and they blow up, and now this stuff floats around and it becomes another planet and it happens over and over and over. So basically. We are stardust. Everything in here was was created in a supernova explosion. Mm-hmm. It just happens to be 
our planet. You know, another planet may be different, have more of something or less of something, depending on what, what it coalesced in space. So does that mean that there's there's no new matter, right? Like all matter is just <clears throat> transformed from previous matter? Uh, well, there, there'll be more matter created, but it'll be the same type of matter. The same chemical elements will still be there. Okay, we haven't At least we haven't found anything that's... We'll find a new one every once in a while. Or we'll create one. Mm-hmm. It's like well, like one fifteen. We created one fifteen on the on the chart, um, but only for a brief second. Doesn't you know? You can't make a quantity of it. But it may be something that exists in nature, but we just haven't found it. But every star that's going to contract and explode in a supernova is going to create more of what this place is made of, in different amounts. Gold, you know, all this, uh, or iron ore. All this stuff came from, you know. Uh, Coalescing of all these things hitting together. The water on the planet came mm-hmm. from comets you know, hitting as well. And most most dead, dry planets had water on it. Mars had water on it. Our moon did not. Well, <coughs> they're finding ice at the top and bottom of the moon. I didn't know that. Yep. Yep. Do you think that there's life aside from water, intelligent life on other planets? Oh, it has to be. Yeah. It absolutely has to be. There's. It may have happened already. It may be long gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, remember, we're, you know, we're 13 and a half billion years old, this universe is, from right. what we can tell, 13.72. Uh-huh. Okay, so if it happened in the first third of that, where life was created somewhere, I mean, it's huge. So if it happened here, it may have died out over billions of years. We might just be in the middle of our process of dying out or, or building up. But it's probably happening everywhere. You know, if you... You've got uh, just in our Milky Way alone. You know, you've got two hundred millions or two hundred billion stars, and we found that almost every star has at least one planet. Some have multiples, and, and so many of them have what's in the Goldilocks zone, which is warm enough, cool enough, mm-hmm. like Earth. So, uh, anyways, Goldilocks zone. Uh, there have got to be infinite numbers of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be different for you know, each star, whether it's closer or further from this. If the bigger star, the Goldilocks zone can be further away because it radiates more heat, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you also have more radiation. You know, So life on a different planet is going to be, in my estimation, is going to be a whole different type of thing. It, it may not be uh, flesh and blood like us. It, mm-hmm. you know, it could be a little more... Uh, what's... Uh, more of an essence. I don't know how to explain it in the way I think of it. It may just be more of a, think of it as a, a I'm going to say spirit, but think of it more of a, a less of a bodied type. Maybe of, an intelligence? It'll have intel- it would have intelligence mm-hmm. of sorts. It would have whatever it requires to, to, to stay alive, to sustain mm-hmm. itself. Uh, it may not be ethereal. That's what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Something more of just a, you know. Sure. Or it could be a bug. You know, that we'll never get to talk to. You know, it just may not have anything just being a bug. Right. Uh, but if there are oceans up there, I can only, uh, somewhere I can only imagine what the creatures would be in there. They would be totally different. Because it, everything adapts to where it's at. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we lost dinosaurs and everything 16 million years ago. And, uh, bummer. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Can't do much about it. But as far as the planets go, if you look, if... From what they're finding now, they've mapped pretty much the entire universe the best they can. They, uh, with the, uh, what they call a light map or star map. Uh, it shows the hot and cold spots. And we're talking hot and cold because of the, the original Big Bang. Mm-hmm. Uh, distributed matter throughout the universe. But they're finding that things are networked as far as almost a, uh, think of it as a, a honeycomb type pattern or a structure pattern, like, uh, like a, a building structure. Mm-hmm. And they're finding that galaxies, 
massive amounts of galaxies. The galaxy groupings are also creating these things. So they're looking at it almost like a lattice work. Uh, if you were to, t um, you know, what's it? Uh, the ball that uh, the plastic thing expands. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the name of that now. The, the inventor. He just died recently, by the way. Oh, really? Sad. Yeah. Um, there's a structure to the layout of where all of the objects in our universe are. They're not just so random, but even though they're moving apart, they're mm -hmm. still in a particular lattice shape. Uh, if you think of you know, a massive giant could actually you know, kind of crawl around like monkey bars on this thing. It's that kind of a, a woven pattern. It's fascinating to think of, that there is a structure to something that's expanding. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be. It definitely shouldn't be, but that has to do with dark matter, dark energy, uh, you know, antimatter, all the different uh, aspects of, of what's in between the solid objects. The solid objects only take up 1% of the entire universe, or right. even that, maybe like by these point seven percent of the whole entire universe. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's like taking a, a, yeah. a pin and just poking it in a, a map of the universe and saying, bing, everything solid fits in there. Everything yeah. else is empty. Uh -huh. It's not. They're finding there's energy. There's, uh, well, both positive and negative energy. Uh, there might be an anti-gravity uh, that they're finding, which is really interested in. Uh, string theory is, is dying, it sounds like. The, the concept of everything being made by harmonic string uh, motions and stuff as opposed to being just molecules and atoms. Um, I'm diverging, sir. Oh, no. I'm, I'm, I love it. <laughs> uh, I think we started off with, oh, uh, the number of, of universes, or number of, uh, well, number of universes, but number of galaxies out there. Uh, it's, it's incredible. Uh, they're finding blank spots where it's simply dark, and they'll they'll point the telescope at that. Think of a dime, uh, fifty feet away. That's how big they're looking at a little space like that. And they're finding tens of thousands of universe or of uh, uh, galaxies just in that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking a dime fifty feet away. That's the the hole they're looking through. It's just the number of galaxies eliminates the possibility that we're alone. Right. Just mathematically. Just mathematically. Yeah. Because you'd need, so in order for there to exist life, you need to be in the Goldilocks zone of some star, right? right. Particular life's Goldilocks zone. They might be methane breathers. They may not need, they might not be carbon and oxygen like us. They, mm -hmm. they may be totally different. They might, they might live off of a different type of element that's out there. They don't, they don't have to be air breathers. We're talking, you know, they might, again, methane or, or uh, you know, what we consider to be an ozone mm -hmm. is what they live off of. Mm -hmm. So they, they would be totally different. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, when I think about life in other planets, it seems pretty logical to me that there is life. Um, it almost seems illogical that there's not, right? There's okay. millions and millions of galaxies and stars, <coughs> and you've got to imagine at least one has life. But the difference for me when I think about it is intelligent life. Because even here on Earth... Um, there's no, you know, there's no imagination in animals, at least not to the extent or, you know, abstract thought. Do you think that, so, why is it that humans have that, but there, there's at least none of that that we have on Earth? Do you think that exists elsewhere? Yes, in a different form. Uh, and I have to question your comment on intelligent life. I, um, octopuses, oddly enough, the fact that I draw them has nothing to do right. with this, but that's why they fascinate me. Sure. They are... Cell for cell, as intelligent as we are, okay. they don't have the potential to express it. Uh, if they, if they were, 
if they evolved and continued to evolve the way that they are meant to or, or could have capacity mm-hmm. to, they would be smarter than us without a problem. Mm-hmm. An octopus gets pregnant, has the babies, stays with the babies for six months and goes off and dies. She doesn't teach them what she knows. She's intelligent. She's incredibly intelligent. Mm-hmm. If her babies could accept the information that she could teach them, they would suddenly start off a little higher than they are. They would sure. have to build this. They were not reinventing the wheel. But over time, this ability to learn and to, to function and to recognize things, it would it would exceed ours, our okay. intelligence, mm-hmm. easily. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't be able to do certain things. I mean, there are some physical, physiological reasons and physical things they couldn't do. They couldn't build a car and drive a car. Right. But knowledge-wise, their ability to learn is is far greater than ours. They Interesting. Just, they just are in a they're in an environment and in a limited lifespan, and they don't pass along the information. We do. We pass it along. The only reason you know how to use this stuff is because someone else built it. Someone right. else built it because someone else said, hey, I have a great idea. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I guess that makes total sense because someone, you know, thousands of years ago living in the Stone Ages, it's not necessarily that they were in a less intelligent life form than us, but it's just that we have a cumulative intelligence. Exactly. Oh, well, the American Indians didn't have the wheel. Right. Freaked them out. Uh-huh. You know, but... That doesn't mean that they're less intelligent. It means they were in an environment that it wasn't necessary or it wasn't. It just didn't happen to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's evolution. It's evolution of industry. And, and well, I guess, uh, okay, that, that seems fair. So maybe a better question is, do you think that there are intelligent societies elsewhere in the universe? Because there are intelligent societies in the same way that we can accumulate knowledge over time. Right. There aren't those in, in okay. the world. Do you think that those exist elsewhere? I would hope so. I really would. I would hope yeah. so because that's, I don't know, I think that would have to be the basis for for growing like we have as humans. Mm-hmm. We're going to kill ourselves. We're going to kill ourselves off. <laughs> right. And we really are. Well, that's, we're and I'm fine de- with that depleting because, resources and <coughs> yes, wars. And, wars and, and diseases and everything else is going to happen at our own hand. And, I'm, and I understand that's going to happen. And um, AI is going to be a part of that, a big part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, not teaching art in schools is going to be a part of that. Thank you very much. <laughs> True. That part of the brain, I mean, who knows? Maybe we don't need it. Just maybe we'll uh, evolve someday to not even have our creative side of our brain because over time we keep degrading that and not teaching it to the next generation. As skeptical as I am of AI, what you just said is what they're predicting. Is it we're going to build a robot that's going to be able to build another robot? And another robot and another robot and mm-hmm. they're going to get smarter potentially um, learn to learn as opposed to just be programmed mm-hmm. and when that happens if that happens which I don't think it will I think it's I think technically it could if we were still existing as a human populace it, it could eventually get to that point mm-hmm. but we're not it's going to taper off we're going to kill ourselves off exactly. and I don't mean that in a, in a negative way it's just going to happen mm-hmm. you know if we don't populate another planet this one is going essentially going to become a cesspool, um, both in in and off of the planet surface, and it's just gonna just gonna die, and it's it's a because of resources or because we're gonna resources and we're going to I think we're just gonna we're gonna strip ourselves of all of our ability uh, to support ourselves. In what way? Uh, both resources and in. Um, skills. Okay. We're gonna we're gonna give so much to 
artificial and unnecessary uh, systems that when when the satellites go down or are gobbled up or crash or you know whatever happens, mm-hmm. you know space war anything. It sounds silly, but when something happens to your life support system, you suffer, you suffocate, and you die. Mm-hmm. And we're going to suffer, we're going to suffocate, and we're going to die. Because electronics are going to be the end-all, be-all. And when that doesn't happen, when it doesn't last, when it when something unexpected happens, and it does and it will, mm-hmm. um, it'll be so detrimental that we're going to be back to, you know, if, if there is a populist left, it's going to be a less intelligent populist because they're not going to have been dependent on or relying on the system. Mm-hmm. And I sound like a doomsday. I sound like, you know, I should have the hood on with the glasses. And, uh, <laughs> the tinfoil well, hat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, yeah, the black, the blue thing over my face. Uh, so uh, but no, it's, it's, and I'm not talking, you know, 50 years. I'm talking eventually. Sure. Uh, we're not going to be able to sustain. And, and you, you don't wish bad things on, on your own, but, we're going to deserve it. It's going to happen, and it's going to be because uh, you know we, we've forgotten our past, we've forgotten where we came from, and we don't give a damn about a creature that isn't as intelligent as us. We're mm-hmm. not going to worry about that. If people worried about that, they wouldn't do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's out of my hands. I'm an old man by now, and you know I, I can only do so much. Uh, and basically, I've done nothing. I've contributed. Guilty, all of us. Yeah, I drove to work. You know, I went to Walmart. Right. Contributing. Right. And but it's how we exist right now. It's a I wouldn't even say it's a sad fact. I'm gonna say it's a fact that hasn't happened. And if I'm totally wrong, that's fine too. Right. But we're gonna screw this place up. Mm-hmm. We've already done a pretty good job of that. Yeah. You know, uh, coral reefs are dying. Yeah. I sound like a infomercial for Bernie Sanders or something, or one of the, you know, <laughs> kids today, Al Gore. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Al Gore. And funny thing is, he was right all along. And people mocked him, partly because of his delivery, you know, the way he stood like a tree or just told. But he, a lot of what he was saying, people, they just, they, they laughed it off. And it's all, a lot of it is just, it's coming to fruition right now. These, yeah. these things. And, and I feel bad that uh, no one listened to him. Because mm-hmm. he was, he was right at the time, he was the, the voice of reason for that. But no one, nobody, we didn't need it. Right. We had other things going on. We had right. better things happening. Yeah. So that's going to be sad. But as far as life on other planets, I'm sure they've come and gone multiple times, like like this planet has. You mm-hmm. know, uh, there was a time we were down to ten thousand people on the planet, supposedly, because of uh, events that happened. You talking ice Human. age? No, uh, we're talking ice age. But we're yeah. Uh, um, we had a you know, the the talk of floods is in every society, disconnected societies mm-hmm. on different continents and different you know, different lands, different cultures, and everything. But all about the same time, uh, there's evidence of it in places that it wasn't expected. There's evidence of it in places that we thought were younger than they are, which ironically, it's the the event was called the Younger Dryer. And that basically, we had a massive flooding of the earth, and it wiped out a lot of stuff. Um, there's full-on evidence for it. Uh, there's, a, there's a black line in the sand and the dirt in every continent at the same time zone, and that was sediment from, from the floods. 
So all these biblical and other uh, teachings of a flood mm-hmm. came from somewhere. They came from the cultures that, that you know they wrote these these books, but they weren't. They didn't happen at the time of those people. So it's a it's a second hand, third hand, fourth hand story. Mm-hmm. But it did happen. They're you know they're finding so much evidence that it's not even deniable now mm-hmm. that it did happen. Uh, was it a, you know, a wrath of God? Mm-hmm. Depends on which book you read. Sure, you know. Uh, and that's fine. Religion's a good thing for some people, and for others, it, you know, it's it's the cause of their their demise, sure. or their you know, physical or mental. Mm-hmm. Um, I, societal, societal, absolutely, yeah. Um, Makes you wonder what different uh, evolution mankind might have if all those people wouldn't have died. Because now, basically, the people that are on Earth now, I'm assuming by logic that they <laughs> were derived from those ten thousand people, right? Maybe we'd be a lot different. Maybe oh. there'd be different races and different types of people that we can't even imagine right now because we're oh. only based off of this life. Absolutely. Field. Oh no, I would definitely think so. You know, and, and where these people happen to be when they, you know, where they survive, what continent, what, mm-hmm. what area, and the number on that is, you know, I say ten thousand. That was they were saying it could be it could have been as low as mm-hmm. because DNA wise, they're finding that. We can trace everybody back to a fairly small number, mm-hmm. you know, and that's which is scary and impressive at the same time. Kind of blows your mind. It <laughs> does it really yeah, does? That whole "we are all one, we're all yeah. united." When you think about it literally, we actually do kind of share common ancestors. Oh, just, ab- absolutely, we have to. Mind-boggling. Yeah, and it, it's no different than the Big Bang theory. It just happened to be a, a DNA Big Bang. Mm-hmm. You know, it's spread out, and this end of the universe is this, and this is another, and. And in between, everything else kind of got wiped out. So the only thing left is this outer layer of people that are alive now in in our state, not our state, but our, our state of being. Um, you know, people say, "Well, I didn't come from monkeys." No, you didn't come from monkeys. That's not what they're saying. Right. What they're saying is, at some point, you know, things branched off, and the monkeys had nothing to do with us. We were a different species. Uh-huh. Until, you know, they worked us way out. But and there were different <laughs> species of humans too, right? It's not just Absolutely. Homo sapiens. Not at all. There were oh no, there were eons yeah. of uh-huh. changes and changes. And not only that, but because of survival of the fittest, it could be something as simple as the type of teeth that they had meant they could or could not survive. Mm-hmm. You know, if they had grinding teeth and they were vegetarians, but but suddenly we had to die out of the plants, all those people died. Mm-hmm. You know, and if they were carnivores or if they had a, a particular uh, skill or trait that was unique to them because of their environment, maybe they survived the winters, you know, the ice age or something like mm-hmm. that. When the other people who were, I mean, you know, this guy's working on his PhD, but he happens to be a Neanderthal, but he's in a frozen tundra and he dies. Right. Well, all yeah. that knowledge is gone. I mean, yeah, absolutely. It really is. And I say PhD for that era, for that time. Yeah. Well, he it did. makes you wonder how many people in that time, um, died because the the skills that could be used today like they're a genius or they're mathematical or whatever they're analytical or they're even artistic back in the stone ages they would have died off they might not have even passed that on because that doesn't help them survive exactly exactly right and that's now we're talking about the octopuses yeah okay it's basically (laughs) the same thing they take all their knowledge and they die off Uh uh-huh and boom you start from scratch uh with humans it was would have been different i'm guessing uh, again, this is all based on what I've learned. I'm not a paleontologist. I have not done a dig. I haven't, you know. Sure. <laughs> uh, but you do learn some of this stuff in medical school because you do learn a little bit about where things came from uh-huh. physiologically, you know. Uh, why, why kinetically do we work the way we do? Why do things, you know, 
when we came from monkeys, which we didn't, but you know they have a same, similar structure and they their muscles are different, but they walk up they can walk upright or they can do the same things as us. But uh, there were certain certain skills and certain uh, physiological aspects to different lineages of humans back in the day as they were breaking off and, and changing. And there were some that lived at the same time. You know, uh, uh, Homo habilis and Homo erectus were, I think, were around at the same time. But they were very different. You know, Lucy, she was only the, you know like this tall, but she mm-hmm. was a full-grown woman at the time. Mm-hmm. Didn't have to be big. You know, they, there was no reason for that. They had to be small and fast. Those are the ones that survived. You grew too big, you got eaten, or you're slow. Mm-hmm. So you didn't pass along your, your DNA and your genes. Uh, but in another part of the world, had this same person been alive, he would have been fine because being bigger maybe meant he survived and, and could be the aggressor. And he would live longer and pass along his genes. So, you know, you've got, uh, you know, the, um, the Swedes and the Norwegians and stuff like that. They're very different than uh, the South Africans. And they're very different from, you know, the uh, Maori tribe. And they're different from Europeans, from Germans, you know, just because of, well, Germans, but that whole area, because mm-hmm. that was a whole different physiological requirements and uh, different food, uh, different uh, learning, uh, even their their habit, uh, their habitats. Because of the way they lived, they developed differently. Mm-hmm. And it's just the way it is, you know. It's interesting. What do you think the evolutionary impact is of the way that we are now, where one... Um, we don't really have survival of the fittest because no. we all survive. <clears throat> yes. And so back in the day, you know, if you weren't the, the fastest, the best hunter, or you were too tall or too short, depending on your environment, you died. And so the genes didn't get passed on. Now we pass on basically all genes. Um, and then the other thing is we're more of a global, um, uh, basically a, a global society as opposed to back in the day when, you know, foragers would go, but you only traveled within a hundred mile radius, maybe your whole life. Yeah. Now that we're interbreeding with different races and we're all traveling the world and that type of thing, what do you think those two things do to evolution going forward? I think it's going to make us both stronger and weaker uh, when it comes to susceptibility to diseases or environment, mm-hmm. uh, becoming more homogenous as far as DNA. Mm-hmm. You know, they, it's, I remember as a kid, they said at one point, everybody would be the same shade of color. Because of all the merit. Just mixing, mix and mixing and mixing and mixing. Eventually, it's just, yeah, yeah it's going to, you're mixing uh-huh. all your colors and you can end up with this muted color. That's uh-huh. the color people will be. You think that's true? I think it's possible in pockets. I think, you know, um, I don't think so. I think there's still, there will always be a little bit of, um, I'm attracted to that because that is me. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it is. Right. You know, animals, that's the way all animals are, for the most part. <coughs> um you know, they occasionally find a you know an animal that is a little different, and we and you, what do you say? Is that evolution? Is that a change? Is it being accepted because it's better or worse? But we're it's ingrained in us to look for, uh, and even though we don't use it the way we do now, the way we, we used to is you looked for certain traits in a, in a mate. So we're predisposed to look for things that we thought would be a good mate for the survival of our species. Uh huh. It had nothing to do with pretty. It had nothing to do with, uh, you know, can they cook? Anything sure. like that. It had to do with uh, were big hips. Big hips were meant delivering healthy babies mm-hmm. easily. They didn't die. 
Mm-hmm. We learned this from our previous ancestors who, you know, they all had big hips and, and the story was passed down that these are the women that are more fertile and have, you know, easier time of, of carrying a baby. Which biologically is true. It absolutely is. That's what it's built for. That's the uh-huh. reason. Okay, but then you get into vanity when, you know, they, everybody has to look, you know, savout and skinny. And uh-huh. None of that mattered when it came to survival. And it doesn't matter now because, like you said, we're all going to survive. Yeah. We're doing fine. Well, that's an interesting point. I mean, the things we're attracted to now aren't necessarily the best biologically. No, God, no. Absolutely I mean, look not. at a Victoria's Secret model. Okay. Very skinny. Oh, oh. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, exactly. After I turn off the camera. Yeah, they, <laughs> and they they probably wouldn't last long out uh, in the, on the in savannah. The yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, yeah, but then again, then again, with the mindset now, they would last a long time because somebody would say, ooh, I'm, I'm willing to forego that natural selection and go for this and I will take care of you. Mm-hmm. I will feed you. I will do this and this, you know, and I will be your protector. And your. When back in the day, it wasn't. It, it had to do with, oh, I like her. She could fight off a tiger. Yeah. That's what I need because, you uh, know, when I'm out, you know, and now you're right, that doesn't exist. I wonder how many of the stereotypes we have for attraction now are based off of biological um, that aren't necessarily logical. Like, for example, maybe back in the day when a woman was looking for a man, she was looking for a man who um, was bigger. He could fight off saber-toothed tigers or was faster or maybe was chief, had resources and yeah. could feed the family. But now, necessarily, like a bigger guy in our world doesn't necessarily protect you more because we don't have saber-toothed tigers. Right. Yeah, but maybe women are so attracted to that because there's a biological... Yeah, you know, like what's innate. their earning income? You know, what's, yeah, what's exactly. Their, exactly. Hi, buddy bear. Sorry to leave you. Well, he's... <laughs> How's he's it going? Hey. 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 Go, go see mom. Save me from tiger. If you could bark right into the microphone, that would... Thank you, Susie. We want to make sure we get those clear, so... Susie, read. Read, Susie. Hi, nice to meet you. His wife didn't make it. Her name is Wright. Oh, bring her next time. Come over again. Yeah, what's she, your wife's name? Maddie. Maddie. Oh, Maddie. No, Riley's my friend. No, I said Wright. Right. Read and write. Read, read, anyways, read. Bad joke. Okay. <laughs> oh. Uh, uh, I get it now. Thank you. I was thinking okay. R-I-T-E. I know. So I uh, <laughs> went right over my head. So, uh, but yes, earning potential is now one of the key things. Mm-hmm. Uh how does he look on my arm? Or how mm-hmm. does she look on my arm in a photograph? What's his status? What's his status? Exactly. He has resources in the society. Yeah. People look up to him. But go back a uh, generation, actually two generations, I would say. And it was back to what you said. Can this person provide for me on the planes? Can they help me you know, haul a wagon full of kids across the, you know, the plane mm-hmm. to get to a destination? Can we plow fields together? Can we do all that stuff? And if you look at the, the era when if a man was lost in battle... Another man quickly came in and, and took over the family, mm-hmm. partly because you know they're always looking for mates to make more kids to have a bigger family because four of your kids are going to die before they're six. Sure. And so you need another three to carry on your legacy. And your, and your farm. I mean, they helped you know, exactly. sustain yeah. everything. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not always about, I, I guess it could be your own safety, but some the safety of somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, Another story is, uh, I won't go into that, that one's a little too graphic. For this podcast, at least. Okay. Okay. Uh, and he's back again. Hi, buddy bear. <clears throat> but no, even uh, Civil War era, it was, it was the same thing. 
So many men went to war and died. Mm-hmm. Suddenly there's this glut of, of females with kids and farms, or yeah. full farms, they have full businesses because yeah. the men went off to fight. Uh-huh. <coughs> and, and they married young at the time, so these could have been you know, 18, 19 year old women with two kids and a full farm because the farm may have been gifted because there was a lot of that. There was so much land available that as, as a dowry it would be. Here's 30 acres, here's, you know, a, small, here's a plow and a cow, and, a, you know, and so you can marry when you're 16 and, and have a family and get started. Mm-hmm. Well, a year later, the guy goes off to war, gets killed or you know, whatever, and now all these, these women are available for a kind of a ready-made family, and these suitors would come and... and and it had nothing to do with looks. It had to do with she's got forty acres. I could be, you know, I could do great. Yeah, with that. yeah. Well, I don't care that she's <coughs> butt ugly or whatever. And vice versa. Men were not. I mean, we're not talking you know, supermodels. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, uh-huh. a GQ magazine. We're talking you know, a guy with six teeth and and you know two different ears and everything else <laughs> from inbreeding or just hillbilly type. Who uh-huh. knows what? Um, the great story, Wilbur McLean. Hi, Mom, I told you this story, too. Wilbur McLean, you ever heard that name? No. Okay, this is a Civil War era. Uh, he lives in a place called Manassas, Virginia, okay. uh, also called Bull Run, which uh, that may may or may not sound familiar to you. Well, Battle of Bull Run? Battle of, right, okay, exactly. So this is, a, he's fine. Oh, yeah, he's good. So <laughs> Wilbur McLean is a uh, merchant, and he meets this, uh, a widow, and she has some property and stuff, so they marry, mm-hmm. and they're living in Manassas, doing fine. And one day, a three unions or three Confederate soldiers come and knock on his door, and they say, "Hey, we are uh, about to have a war. Uh, we'd like to use your house as uh, headquarters." He's like, well, "I don't even believe it's going to happen." But uh, a couple of days later, it's sitting outside, and a cannonball comes through the out, outside kitchen, the summer kitchen, and uh, knocks over a slave and, and blows up the chimney. And so the war begins. So for a little while, he and his family are still locked in their house. And the battle has begun in his field. They're tearing up his field. I mean, people used to go watch the war. They'd go sit in their buggies on the sidelines and watch battles. That's the way it was. It's pitch battles. Things were, they, yeah. Uh, people would come out in droves. They, were, they knew when it would happen. They'd come out in their wagons and they'd set up picnics and they'd watch the war. Mm-hmm. Well, this is, this is the very beginning of this war. And it happens in this guy's front yard. So eventually, it's, it's too much. So he packs his family up, and they move out to uh, a little place called Appomattox Courthouse, which is about 120 miles away. And this is the first thing. This is 1861 when this first thing happens, uh, the first battle of the war. And so they're clashing in his front yard, and they're tearing up the house. So he moves the family out there. And then about four and a half years later, in June of 1865, no, June of 1865, uh, he's walking down his little street, and a uh, Confederate soldier, a uh, criminal, rides up to him and says, we need a building here in your, in your town. He's, he's, so he's trying to point out all these buildings, and he says, no, those won't do. He says, what about that place? He says, that's my house. He says, okay, we need your house. Same guy, Wilbur McLean. Uh-huh. Okay? They, the surrender takes place in his front parlor. The war started in his front yard and ended his, in his house four and a half to five years later. But be but anyway, we started talking about because he married this widow and he had this property uh-huh. in this particular place. That's how his life turned out. The war started in his front yard because he married the lady who owned this home. And then he moved, moved them out of town and the war ends in his front parlor, the signing of the peace treaty. The same guy. Same guy. I can't believe I've never heard that. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. It really, it's wow. really neat. But uh, yeah, he was a merchant and uh, 
You know, they chose each other, he and his wife, because of she had property and he had a job. Uh-huh. Nothing to do with anything else. Yeah. I wonder when the invention of love and relationships came. Oh, that's always, from, been, around, that's always been around, I think. But it's it's just a matter of convenience and survival. Yeah. You know, it, Is it because we don't need to survive in the same way anymore that that becomes more of a focus? Whereas before, it's like, well, I love you, but we might die. So now, hey, we're, we're not going to die, so I might as well just choose who I love. <laughs> God, I don't know. <laughs> That's a Dr. Phil question. That's not me. No, I, I, I wonder. I wonder if I it has I, to do with media or if it has to do with well, I'm, I'm sure media. pop culture. I'm, I'm sure that's because that's immediate gratification is, you know, having status. Uh-huh. But it's not survival. Right. I would think. And I would think none of what we just talked about would even be remotely considered for one of those other, other planetary societies that we talked about earlier. Because that is, is absolutely a development of humans on this planet in, this, in the way we've lived and evolved. Do octopuses do that? Do they love? Do they feel pleasure? No, they, they rarely, oh, I don't know about that. They rarely congregate in groups, at least we thought so until very recently. They found uh, a collection on the, what they call a collection, on the bottom of the ocean in a very deep, area deep well mm-hmm. where there are thousands of octopuses and they're loners for the most part they don't do the societal thing in fact they're interesting they're very territorial and their territory is very small in fact their vision is not great but it's good enough for them to remember supposedly remember and locate uh little objects that lead them back to their den mm-hmm. and they'll go out a little bit and they'll come back and they'll go out a little bit and come back so their radius is not more than like 30 yards normally from where they're born for their whole life. where they end up their whole life they have no need to, unless they, they'll wander till they find the right spot, and then that becomes their hub. And they generally, they're very territorial, and, oh, you are such a good boy, we'll walk a little bit. Um, and because of, because of that, again, there is no sharing of the knowledge, mm-hmm. but every one of them goes from zero to unbelievably smart without any help makes you wonder it does but what, what if they could take it from there and pass yeah. it along and go I or mean, if they could even just, just live longer you know yeah. maybe that knowledge could transform sure. into more sure or if they're given more tasks that that would belie their skills that you would be able to say oh look they can hold a pencil yeah <laughs> they can write or they can communicate yeah, in they can read maybe they can be noted you know recognize patterns or something and uh, but their communication is incredible. It's it's so far beyond what we can do because they they change skin color and tone and texture. Mm-hmm. And you've ever seen? A, a f- oh, it's amazing. Look at footage of that. It's it's fascinating because they become kind of whatever they want. They can become a, a dangerous animal. Yeah. You know, as far as visibility, what they look like, and they know, nothing will screw with them. Yeah. So interesting. Um, I don't want to take the rest of your night. Um, I'm gonna. Is there? If people want to, first off, uh, get into your art or anything like that, how can they? Oh yeah, this was an art. Podcast. Oh no, I don't care. No, this is, I loved it. I loved it. But I'm just saying, if someone's listening and they're interested yes. in buying any of your art, do you have a website? C Maggio Studio. Letter C, Maggio M A G G I O Studio. C Maggio Studio. Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff. I don't do any of that. My sister has put this together. I've only seen the website twice. <laughs> Honestly, I don't. I don't I, it, and it's beautiful, and but I've seen the Instagram stuff. Uh, the artwork is all mine. It's all original. It's, um, it's very different. I hope you like it. Uh, if you have suggestions or if you have 
I do commissions. I do basically any type of artwork. Uh, portraits? Oh, any type, not that. I do I do <laughs> portraits, but I know people that do better portraits. I would send you their way if you wanted a portrait. Um, just because, you know, the quality of what you get would be better with somebody who specializes in that. But go look and see what I do. Yeah. And if there's something you like, awesome. Absolutely. Okay, this is the conclusion of my first podcast. And I have to say, <laughs> it was less painful than I thought. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And we got off on some serious tangents. That's what I love. That